Marcus. I'm Nolan. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. I'm Mara. I'm Maya. I'm Marius. I'm Jamie. I'm Kat. I'm Justin. And, and this, this is Comicverse. Exactly one year ago, many of the same people you're about to hear from today assembled in this exact same place for a podcast we called X-Men The Dream. Uh, that podcast, our most well-known episode of the time, centered around ideologies in X-Men comics and the X-Men metaphor, a metaphor anyone fighting for their civil rights or anyone who feels others can relate to. So last year's conversation centered around Xavier's dream and its obvious connection to Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, Magneto as a mutant version of Malcolm X, the death of Professor Xavier, and Cyclops's subsequent leadership. This year's podcast will start where last year's left off. We'll be discussing some pretty heavy issues involving religion, race, violence, so keep in mind you're in for some heavy stuff this time around. Not like last year was easy, but um, you can find more podcasts like this one, interviews, articles, and videos over at comicsfirst.com, so be sure to check it out. Uh, be sure to check out our weekly comics news show as well. And before I introduce today's panel, I wanted to thank everybody for being here. Uh, last year and this year, we're celebrating my birthday, discussing issues that are of the utmost importance to me and stuff that I really care about. And we're using X-Men as a platform to discuss them, and everybody knows X-Men comics are my favorite. I literally couldn't ask for better birthday presents, so thank you all, including everyone for listening, for spending this day, and discussing this stuff with me. Just a couple hours ago, comics first writer and X-Men expert Marius Thienenkampf hosted a podcast about how a new and younger generation of X-Men fans interpret the X-Men metaphor for themselves. So I hope you all listen to it. Welcome, Marius. Thank you, Justin. And uh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited for today. And I'm really happy that we're doing the same thing as last year on your birthday again. And yeah, for having the, the opportunity to do like a mini episode with the younger cast. Because I mean... Uh, this is something I, I always wanted to talk about at great lengths about how my experience of reading these comics is maybe different to yours. No, it's cool. And we can get into more of that stuff uh, today. So what's one thing you hope we discussed this year that we didn't have a chance to discuss last year? Well, I think that last year we, we did skip some of the Magneto questions and we can get into that later. I think we will. And then, of course, like the very recent Inhumans vs. X-Men stuff, and maybe we can get a bit into the audience side of uh, controversy, which happened just a few days ago, but we'll see. So the cast of Marius's last podcast episode, join us for this episode. First up is Mara Danoff. How are you, Mara? Good, thank you. How did your first podcast experience go a couple hours ago? It was good. I was a little nervous, but, you know, I think it was really fun. It was fun being able to discuss X-Men with, you know, people really passionate about the subject and willing to, you know, look into the more deeper aspects of it. So I'm really excited to discuss it on your birthday. Maya Nunnally also just recorded her first podcast. Welcome, Maya. Hi. <laughs> also, congratulations. Your article was like the top article. Like every single day this week, 13 reasons why. Do you recommend that show? Should we all go watch it? Um, if you want like a drama, maybe just to binge on and you haven't had suicide in your life, it's pretty graphic. It's like rated MA. Okay, cool. Yeah. So only MA drama, not... Oh, yeah, like, please. Okay. It's about high school, but... I don't know. Younger yeah. high school kids. Go watch Riverdale, it. right? If you want to. Um, yeah. And I did that on purpose. So you guys see what I did there. 
Um, no, I'm glad. So thank you so much for joining us too. All right. So Alex is here. Hi. Hi, Alex. How are you? Happy, happy birthday. Thank you so much. Andrew, how about you? How does it feel to be on your first podcast? I'm just nervous. It's, it's exciting. But it's exciting. We've yes. got a group of smart, wonderful people here and uh, it should be fun. Awesome. And Rachel is joining us. Hello, hello. Rachel, small pubs editor, independent comics editor for Comics First. Yes, and I did the last podcast, the interview with Marv Wolfman with you. You did. So how does it feel doing a non-interview podcast? Just kicking back, relaxing, taking my shoes off. Nice. I'm ready for this. Nice. Yes, Alex, my shoes are in fact off. They are uh, off. Mine yeah. are too. Confirmed. And in fact, we're all going bottomless, as I always say. For your birthday, of course. Of course. Happy birthday. Because um, I don't go bottomless every other podcast. Never, no. Um, it's important to note, though. Anyway, we're over. I'm, I guess I'm moving on. So anyway, Nolan, I'm about to talk about you. You're our resident anarchist and Columbia PhD student studying the first half of the early modern Ming Dynasty. Is that correct? I'm so I feel so proud that you have learned to memorize this. I have I actually have it tattooed on my testicles. Um, but I <laughs> also painful. got was confused if it was the first half or second half of the early modern Ming Dynasty. So I'm glad it was the first half. Uh, so what's one thing you hope we discussed this year that we didn't discuss last year? I felt uh, last year that as the resident anarchist, if that's the role I should fill, I felt last year that I should have done a better job of defending Magneto and violent resistance against the state or against, let's say, any kind of like oppressive establishment more. And I was a little too drunk last year to do that. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is this is this is uh, rated E for explicit. Because I have a, I actually have a responsibility over a departmental happy hour at Columbia, so you know it's my responsibility to get real drunk every two weeks on a Friday. So that happened to fall on that day, you know. But now, I'm very sober and very um, uh, acutely aware of my role this time. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. No, we're sorry to typecast you as the. Uh I'm happy with the that. Anarchists. I just think some the people who themselves converted me to anarchism, they would feel a little bit kind of like you know, brushed aside by such a thing. Uh, that makes me feel really upset. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't want them to feel that I'll way. I'll apologize to them. Okay, good. Um, anyway, okay, so there are two Marvel section editors here, Alex and Kat. Kat is the head editor and also the web comics editor, and I think both Alex and Kat are officially now Comics First Podcast veterans. Uh, how are you doing, Kat? Um, I'm pretty great. How's your birthday going? It's going f-ing awesome. Nice. Yeah. If they were, I think the whole human race wishes they were me right now. I agree. Yeah. No, just kidding. I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. <laughs> um, so anyway, now that your uh, veteran status is official, and not that I haven't asked you this before, but what's some advice you want to give some of the newbies here today? Um, I would say don't be nervous, which is a lot easier said than done because I was definitely nervous my first couple podcasts, but just be yourself and have fun because you're going to have a really good time and everybody's here because we have something to contribute to the conversation. So, yeah. Last, of course, but never least, Comics First Managing Editor, Jamie Rice, you're here again to discuss more X-Men. How are you? I am great and have tons more thoughts about the X-Men. Awesome. So I'll leave it up to you. Do you want to dole out some advice to the newbies or do you want to talk about stuff that we missed last year that you want to talk about this year? Um, I can do both quickly. Um, But I would say for advice, I think what Kat said is true. And I would also say just once you have a really exciting answer that you're passionate about, 
get in the conversation and then everything will flow perfectly from there. And as for things that we didn't discuss, I think the things I'm most excited about are all of the Inhumans v. X-Men things. And I'm very, very, very excited to discuss Emma. And I'm also a little bit excited to discuss Logan because I feel like Nolan has thoughts, he just thought today, and I'm interested to hear them. All right, cool. So let's get started. There is a paper called from, well, it's from uh, A Choice of Weapons, The X-Men and the Metaphor of Black Power versus Integrationism. No one is going to read the quote for you. The integrationist movement shifted focus to attack the notion of separate facilities. They argued, as famously noted in Brown v. Board of Education, that separate facilities are inherently unequal. As a result, white politicians could no longer systematically disadvantage black facilities in terms of funding and other social benefits. When the advantaged and disadvantaged groups are spatially integrated, it becomes more difficult to strategically disadvantage one group or another, as they are inherently intertwined. While this principle works in theory, modern scholars challenge its effectiveness because it has not been fully implemented. Complete institutional integration remains an unattained social goal. Despite its successes, a number of shortcomings of integrationism led to the rise of black power as a movement and the unfulfilled promise of racial equality in modern society. First, the core beliefs of civil rights ideology as confined to the American legal and political philosophies ultimately proved too narrow to adequately address the complexities of desegregation. This is evinced by the continuation of de facto segregation. Because American institutions were created by white people, it has proven impossible as yet for African Americans to achieve equality via systems that they had no hand in creating. American institutions are inherently oppressive, and therefore African Americans cannot obtain equality via these mechanisms. So we know that Xavier didn't particularly give rise to Magneto in the history of X-Men comics, but my question is, or the first question actually is, did the shortcomings of Xavier's dream give rise to post-Avengers versus X-Men Cyclops as a mutant revolutionary? And did it give rise to what we saw of Emma Frost and Death of X? I would absolutely say so, because there's this wonderful scene in, uh, I think it's the last will and testament of Charles Xavier arc in Uncanny X-Men by Bendis, in which uh, we get kind of get a glimpse at the last 20 years in Cyclops' life, and uh, it documents how his uh, mutant revolution kind of was this act of desperation that happened because it felt impossible for him to achieve actual social change with the Charles Xavier approach of um, activism, I guess. And he goes into that in like issue, I think it's issue 40 of Uncanny X-Men by Bendis, uh, in which he talks to his brother Alex and says that he, he didn't start the mutant revolution because he wanted to, but because he had no other choice and because he had no other choice than to, use this threat of violence to uh, help mutants gain their place in society. This is a good example for how the integrationist approach or like more, uh, I guess, liberal approaches to the struggle of minorities uh, can give birth to, to more radical approaches, I guess. Yeah, no, I actually completely agree with you there, um, Marius. And just to add on, especially what Emma Frost did with the death of X, and I don't know how else to explain it, but like astrally projecting, um, Cyclops or like you know Scott Summers like back from the dead in order to just be like this sort of 
aggressive leader type in order to encourage the X-Men to really stand up for what they believe to be wrong. I almost feel like um, completely encapsulates this entire um, question. The idea of we do need someone who can be very strong, but also very like aggressive with what they want, because we've tried this passive route. We've tried, you know, the education. We clearly need something that maybe isn't to the extreme of the um, Magneto early days and all that jazz where he was essentially like a bad guy but now with the greater complexities that have been presented within the x-men comics i think emma frost kind of hits a good middle ground that portrays like this is sort of like the reality of having to fight against an oppressive system what i was just going to say earlier is just that um for cyclops i think just living in charles xavier's shadow for as long as he did I think eventually he was just able to watch how Xavier's dream could never actually um, come to reality. And I think what you see post House of M 10 years ago is Cyclops starting to distance himself from Xavier until eventually he literally killed him, uh, possessing the Phoenix Force. And I think that was just the moment, as we all know, where he was just like, I need to be more radical to get this done. We have the same want, but your means aren't going to do what you want them to do. Although I would technically argue it was Deadly Genesis that made Cyclops start to doubt him. Did you read the arc? Well, that was right after House of M. Yes. So that's what I meant. Like, okay. after, like post House of M is gotcha. when. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I was going to say something definitely changed for Cyclops down the line from when he first became um, an X-Man. Is uh, when in God Loves Man Kills at the very end of the story, he says in defense of mutants, he says, the means are as important as the end. We have to do this right or not at all. Anything less negates every belief we've ever had, every sacrifice we've ever made. And that is definitely not the case for where he was later on in his life. No matter how he achieved his goals, um, it didn't matter as long as he achieved them, no matter what he did. When we were talking about how certain systems have failed schools and things like that, and I think about Professor X, he's kind of like the first guy to take this approach. You know what I mean? Um, and the integrationist Magneto, approach? Well, just his view, whatever it is. He and Magneto were like the two, right? You know, that we were talking earlier about the comparison to Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And I think when you talk about Cyclops, growing up under one, seeing the other, seeing the power struggle between those two things, you can only poke holes in each thing, especially as a young man. You know, when you're a teenager like Cyclops was, all you see is how the adults are getting it wrong. And then when you live long enough to see that it is wrong in, in the way that you're looking at things, you have no choice to do what he did. You know what I mean? And I mean, I, I, I don't think it's a surprise at all. I don't think that when you're feeling oppressed and the person who's supposed to be that dude do it for you. You know, you don't see it happen. Yeah, of course you're going to flip. Within activist movements, even the most peaceful people often get demonized by the media. Anyway, like Martin Luther King was just like stalked by the FBI uh, for many years and once called the most dangerous man in America by the head of the FBI. Um, so I think for Scott, it's like, seeing Xavier be like kind and peaceful and still getting demonized by all these legislatures, media, he's like, they're going to think this way about me no matter what. Um, I think that also influenced his decision. Somebody was talking about how you look at leaders, I think it was Andrew, if you look at these leaders and you're a teen and you watch and all you can see are the mistakes, kind of whenever Kitty later on gets to take up the mantle as the leader, she kind of sits at that desk and thinks about how she kind of lived a little bit 
sometimes in spite of what Professor X was saying, but now she's a leader. And I think there's something to that in the sense that I think with Cyclops, I mean, he lived for such a long time and he saw Xavier do so many attempts to do many good things and also fail so many times and do so many awful things. I know that Justin and I love to talk about the astonishing X-Men danger room situation and other like situations in which he's kind of controlled people against their will and maybe problematic ways. So I think that with Cyclops, he kind of got to a point where he didn't know how to reconcile the fact that he wanted to be better than Xavier, but he couldn't quite find the way to make the solution that wasn't verging into some of the problematic things that Xavier had done. Um, and I think they're probably foreshadowing a bit of maybe that same conflict with Kitty. Um, but I trust Kitty a little more. I mean, I love Scott, but I trust Kitty to navigate the waters. I think she's a little more aware of what she's doing. But so I will say that I think Xavier created Cyclops as the mutant revolutionary, but I think that it was also something that was always in Cyclops. So he couldn't quite rise above the facts of the matter. So I think for me, when I look at Kitty, for example, I think that Kitty kind of has a clear perspective on some of these effects that it's having outside of herself, even like when she talks in X-Men Prime to people around her, it seems like she has a better idea of how it's coming off. So I think it's kind of equal parts Xavier's influence and what Scott saw, but also like Scott's inability to like jump out of that old paradigm that he learned from Xavier. So I think it's not necessarily Xavier's fault, but the paradigm Xavier lived in, Scott couldn't quite escape it. I want to defend Xavier. I think if we're going to agree not to consider Magneto as late Grant Morrison run Magneto, but as like a different Magneto. That was Zorn pretending to be Magneto. Yeah, but that's just what the, that's the most recent decision by the editors, you know, it's their most recent retcon. So, and I agree with them in that retcon, but I think, you know, a, a retcon to kind of take away from the whole, Oh, turns out Xavier was so wrong all along is coming, you know, it's coming. And, if we're gonna, it, basically, what I would say is, if we're gonna consider Magneto and Xavier for the majority of their printed pages, then we're gonna consider them in a form that is neither the late Grant Morrison Magneto nor the recent Xavier, but is more kind of typical for both their characters. And if we're gonna evaluate the um, the fitness of Xavier's ideas, I don't think that we should evaluate it from like turns out he had a different team that went to Krakoa position. We should evaluate it from before that. You know, like, I think, like, really, like, we're not looking at Xavier, like, okay, I guess, I don't know, I just watched Logan today, and I'm not going to state any spoilers, but we see in Logan such a pure Xavier, like, the real Xavier. He has flaws, but he's not this, like, controlling, sacrificing humans and not admitting it Xavier, you know? Well, I somewhat agree with Nolan, It's very easy, I think, to blame Xavier for not having the foresight to think ahead, because in some ways he's very much a god out of all the mutants, just the depth of his telepathy and the fact that he has Cerebro. He is the closest thing, short of the Phoenix Force, I think, to being an actual god among the mutants. But at the same time, Xavier is a human being. And I mean, that's the whole issue of the X-Men mythos, right? That these mutants are still human. And I think it's almost, as much as we want to, it's impossible to ask our leaders to be anything but human. I mean, to ask Obama, the first black president, to be the best black president is impossible. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did not end segregation. It was, a mil- it was 
centuries and centuries and millions of people who we'll always forget that ended this. This is how civil movements work. It's never just one person as much as we truly want it to be. So I think that's something to keep in mind. I completely agree with what you're saying on a certain level. There's, um, I think that when, and what I was talking about with uh, Xavier being the first, it's like, really he was one of the first activists for mutants, if not him and Magneto being just on separate sides, they were still activists for them. And the pressure of, you're this person and you have to speak for this group of people, you know, and you're not going to get it all right. Like you were saying about Obama, couldn't get it all right. You know, there's this joke by Dave Chappelle where he's like, it's great that there's a black president. I wouldn't want to be the first black president. Like, I don't, because the, the pressure that that comes with is substantial. And we see what it does to you. Power corrupts in that sense. Cyclops folded. You know, like he tried to, he tried to be better. And sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. And, you know, we talk about Kitty Pride, and we're going to see now what's going to happen with that, you know, and that's exciting because now you have multiple people to learn from. And as a woman, I'm sure she brings a whole nother dimension to, to the leadership, to what she's seen, to how she's treated as a Jewish woman. On top of that, there's, you know, there's history there, you know, and that history is shared with Magneto in a sense. So it'll be interesting to see what the fourth leader of this team, or I, I don't know the exact number, but what a new leader like this will bring. Exactly. And, you know, this debate, like, I'm, I don't, I can't bring as much nuance as um, you just did, but I will, I will try. And, well, because for me, I've always seen Xavier and Magneto as like two sides, like two opposite sides of the same coin. They've always fought for the same thing, but they've just had very different approaches for it. And I think now being older at 20, <laughs> the ripe old age of 20 um I I I as much as I really like the when I was younger I really loved Xavier's way of doing it we should try and get everyone to understand each other but the fact of the matter is is that some people just really don't want to understand others and what do you do then like how can you simply just let them keep saying awful things I personally never really had to experience that so I can't really understand what that's been like yet I can imagine that if I had personally experienced such a thing I would be angry and as such I would be very much so relate to what Magneto why he does what he does in the way he does it just one last thing when you talk about that anger you know I grew up in Harlem my whole life so I've seen it at bad and I see it now and sometimes I'm at a local bar and people go yeah this neighborhood's really nice now and I was like, that's not what you like, just to sit there and be like, it was always nice. You know what I mean? It's, it's white now is kind of what you're saying to me. And when I was younger, it was the same thing. It was like, there's got to be a peaceful solution. There's got to be. And then I'm watching the news about dudes that look like me and my friends getting popped by cops. And there's like, this by any means necessary shit might be for real. And then when you take that aspect, when you see people like your friends or like yourself getting murdered, you see a cop get shot and your instinct there's is to say that's terrible but there's a voice in the back of your head that goes fuck him and it's it's horrifying because that's a person with a life with a family but you've seen so much that's that both sides of the coin i guess you know there's a part where it doesn't work that way i guess 
So growing up in the American school system, whenever we learned about um, the civil rights movement, you know, we usually focus on Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, and I think this focus on the peaceful leaders is a way to sort of like dull the mindset of kind of the middle ground of people who want to fight for rights but don't want to take it to that place. If you think about it, this um, the anti-gun rhetoric that a lot of like liberals have has sort of like <laughs> left us really far. Um, if like anything were to happen, we have like no weapons um, or like anything like that. Like I feel like by promoting this rhetoric of the peaceful way is the right way, but giving all the weapons to the other side, we kind of just like, I don't know, I feel like it was a little bit of an indoctrination that happened during my childhood that just like left us with this, left us in this place where we don't know what to do. I would say, in fact, that the way John Brown is described in American history textbooks systematically discourages people from using violence to oppose violent institutions. You know, I mean, like, that was a white man who used violence to oppose violent institutions, and in and he kind of receives short shrift in American history textbooks, never mind what actual American African Americans receive in uh, history textbooks. And... I I, I kind of want to ask, like, is it the position of the podcast that uh, police are an oppressive institution, or is it not? I mean, my dad's an NYPD detective, and and I very much see it like there are. Well, I I mean, my dad would argue actually that the recruitment of police officers in New York City has gotten significantly less stringent than it was in his days. And um, you know, he's a Puerto Rican. He also grew up nine blocks away from here. And I mean, he would have so much to say about this, uh, to be honest with you. But um, but I don't take an anti-police stance, but I'd say it's very jarring to walk around New York City and to see, I, I've never seen police not arrest a black man or a Hispanic man. I've never seen them arrest a white person on the street. And um, that, that jars me. And of course, watching all the gun violence around the country is terrifying. And I do think there's a problem. And I do think there are overzealous police officers around there's people whose power tripping around i've seen them myself i don't know if i think the institution in itself is bad and i'll tell you if something you know if i was getting carjacked i would really hope a police officer was was showing up well that's that thing right it's like there are people that are scared to call the police in a situation like that you know like they're like i want to call the cops something's gonna happen i don't want to make it sound like i'm anti-cop because i have friends with parents who are cops and the police when we talk about racial profiling, it's very, very difficult, right? But at a certain point in history, that was how you did, like you were being sent into these neighborhoods with people who didn't look like you, and you were trying to stay alive. I can't fault a cop for that. You know, that's part of your job is that you might get shot. So it's dangerous. It's high pressure situations that it's a re there's a reason I talk and write about comic books because I can't do something like that. It's a very difficult situation. So. It's not all on the cops. It's not all on the people. It's not all on, you know, anybody in that sense. But it's years of some of things going one way. And as a result, both sides kind of get these emotions. It's very complex. The people, there are people that love the police in the area. There are people that hate them. And sometimes those people are guilty of heinous crimes. And sometimes they're not, you know. Absolutely. I want to ask the second question and continue this discussion, too, because I think um, the second question can be absorbed into people's answers. And that question is Magneto inherently wrong in what he believes or is it only his tactics 
that are wrong. I guess I'm going to be like the straw activist and be like, I am anti-cop. Um, but in the way that I'm not anti-police man or police woman, but I am anti-police. Um, in the same way that I see a lot of people who applaud women, for example, for becoming CEOs of a company, whereas I'm like, aren't you like, you're, I feel like CEOs, you're just in a capitalist system that I also disapprove of, so I'm not going to like be like okay with you being in there. So yeah, bringing that to Magneto, um, I think I think it's the same thing with Magneto. I don't know if he's even... Uh, there's so many like versions of Magneto that I'm drawing from because I feel like he's I guess my childhood is like marred by reflections of by uh, representations of him in the movies where he's just like straight up evil and like just wants to kill people all the time but he um, I don't want to interrupt but he's so relatable in the movies Ian McKellen he's so charismatic you know like um okay early 2000s no Fassbender I was attracted to so I didn't know like what I was feeling um but but yeah I felt like Ian McKellen I felt like he's relatable but also like he does some pretty terrible things like I'm thinking of like an x3 when uh, Mystique just like becomes a human and he's like well we were friends all this time not anymore like I, I don't know I feel like he's so villainized but um and I feel like people see him, I guess, as the bad guy because in the first trilogy, he's always the bad guy. They don't have like an external force like in the newer ones. It's like Apocalypse or something. Um, anyway, I think that's him. Like he, the system that has like created this, this divide is something he hates, but he gets cu- too caught up in it that it turns into hating humans themselves, which like it's easy to do sometimes if like, I don't know, if, you, if like Andrew said, if this is all you see, it, it, it's easy to like cross that line. I think something that often gets lost when we discuss Magneto is the fact that he is a victim of trauma. For a very long time, um, his backstory has consisted of him being the only Holocaust survivor of his family. And I think a lot of his character and a lot of his beliefs and tactics stem from the fact that he was supposed to die in a genocide of his people long before he even knew he was immune. He was supposed to be dead just for being Jewish. And I think that's very integral to the character. And that adds such a degree of nuance to him. He's not just the villain with the admittedly badass costume. He is so much more fleshed out when you take that into consideration. The fact that his children, Polaris, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, are probably also dealing with that trauma. I think House of M was very telling in what Marion Hirsch calls post-memory or generational trauma. Or post-trauma, too. Yes, Yes. or post-trauma. Generational trauma within a family. When I read Magneto and my understanding of him personally is that, and I think for a lot of people who have seen sort of the underbelly of human nature, is that when something horrible happens like that and you see all these signs of people, you know, going down that road again, of course it's going to happen again. It's, he doesn't, in my opinion, Magneto doesn't think that humans are going to commit genocide against mutants. He knows they will, and it's only a matter of time. And every single thing they do supports his hypothesis or or his knowledge that this will happen. So I very much uh, agree with you. Kind of going back to a criticism of the police as an institution, uh, which I wanted to add something to, is I kind of get the, the critique of the police as a as an inherently oppressive institution in the context of like a nation state in which the 
uh, shortcomings of the integrationist movement or integrationism in general would cause the police to uh, systematically keep oppressing these marginalized groups. I guess that it's at the very least questionable to which extent these shortcomings can be overcome, I guess, and to which extent the police can be less oppressive. But at the very least, that's something, even though I don't really have like a full-fledged opinion on this, at the very least, it's something I think we should have in mind. And when it comes to um, Magneto's ideology being inherently evil or not, I think that part of the ideology is to see this inherent oppression in the nation state and trying to overcome that. But if we take a look at his his full-fledged ideology in the way it has been presented in uh, God Loves Men Kills, I think part of this is to build an even more powerful nation state or a, a set of even more powerful nation states that operate in like a socialist way in which he is essentially a dictator, even though he doesn't want to call it that. I think that this part of, uh, of his ideology is uh, inherently bound to fail and bound into, uh, well, to fall back, not necessarily into fascism, but into uh, definitely into authoritarianism. So in that way, I think that um, you could call part of parts of what Magneto is doing inherently evil, if you would, wish so and i i'm i would be probably on board with that but in a lot of um magneto's ideology is a response to the oppression that he has um well perceived on many levels so i guess we would have to contextualize a lot of what he's doing and then take some of what he's advocating for and realize that it's it's not that far-fetched or villainy after all um, going off of what everybody said, um, Magneto is a Holocaust survivor. So he already, he's, he knows what it's like to have his people murdered and persecuted. He already lived that and he doesn't want to live through it again with mutants. So I think his beliefs are so valid and important, even if his tactics are wrong. What he's doing is justified because as everybody said, he knows what it's like to go through that and he doesn't want to have to live through that one more time. So it comes from a very personal place for him, of course. I also think it's important that if you're looking at that aspect of it, being a mutant to him is far more dangerous than being Jewish because they were trying to be killed by a group of people and there was parts of the world that were fighting against that during that time. Mutants threaten human beings on every level, you know what I mean? Especially when in a world where the prominent theory is evolution and it looks like, look who's around the corner, you're about to be ended. So... I think when he sees that and he's like, wow, that was, he can see it on such a larger scale. He can be like, if they were going to do that to us for almost no reason at all, like us not being threatening as a race, they will do that to us. And I mean, somebody did see them as a threat, but yeah. the rest of the world sees you as a threat. You know what I mean? Humans everywhere. And so he probably just, like everybody's saying, it's that mentality of never again. That will never happen to me or anybody like me ever again. It's a it's a kind of a I think a little known but a very common fact of terrorists that they were tortured earlier in life. This is a a, a very normal thing. Uh, Ayman al Zawahiri, the co-founder of Al Qaeda, was tortured by the uh, Egyptian government for his resistance to it. 
and the torture that he suffered inspired him to become a resistor not only to the Egyptian government but to like the whole kind of Euro-American hegemony of the world, you know? And like there's a couple there's a couple things that torture does. One is it makes you kind of like will be more willing to risk your life afterward, you know? Cuz like well you've already been through something worse than death. And another thing is it just makes you feel very vengeful. And so like Magneto having been tortured as a very young child, you know, there's a good reason for him to be so ruthless, for him to be when you've already been exposed to the worst things humans can do to each other, you know, you just kind of brush everything else off afterward. Um, so I think that in that way, Magneto is a very realistic portrayal of a terrorist. He is someone who has been tortured and he has set aside his optimistic ideas about humanity in the face of torture. And that's not just like a literary device. It's a totally real thing. Uh, you know, the British tortured Irish people in the 90s and they became radicalized by their torture. It's just like, this is the reason that right now, Mad Dog Mattis convinced uh, Trump not to uh, maintain his public stance in favor of the sort of like soft torture techniques that the CIA was using. He said, this is just a net uh, negative for the United States. There's Torture only inspires people and those sympathetic to them to become more avidly resistant, you know? And so we right now have a very kind of a pro-torture government who's willing to admit that torture is bad. That it just, it's just, there's no reason for it. And I think like, we have to recognize that aspect of Magneto's character. The, the Holocaust thing kind of falls into a familiar narrative too easily. And if we like take ourselves out of that familiar narrative and just see it as torture like any other torture, then we feel a little more kind of, um, we see things from a more universal perspective, I think. We recently podcasted about Marvel's Muslim superheroes who all happen to be women in our podcast, which was like super exciting. But I thought we couldn't discuss the X-Men metaphor without at least briefly discussing the state of Islamophobia in the United States. Um, Nolan, would you want to continue reading that quote from the same paper? From A Choice of Weapons, the X-Men and the metaphor of black power versus integrationism. Since the series was formed to mirror the world the readers live in, Professor Xavier's inclusionary viewpoint is not without flaws, nor entirely effective. Even though the X-Men steadily protect the Homo sapiens from villainous mutant attacks, they are continuously under attack by the humans, as vividly illustrated in the Sentinel series and the series dealing with Genosha, the mutant slave labor island. Okay, so like the X-Men who swear off Magneto's mutant nationalist approach, what are the implications of quote-unquote moderate Muslims deciding or not deciding to swear off radical elements of their religion, and do they have an obligation to do so? The amount of Christian terrorism that exists in this nation and like the fact that people think that moderate Muslims need to decide to swear off this where moderate Christians, which is most of the country, don't honestly makes me angry <laughs> on a very deep level. I think the metaphor from X-Men to Islam is different because of the choice involved. I just think it's like a little iffy. You can't really choose to be a mutant but you can convert to Islam. But also there's violence again, uh, there's violence against Muslim people, even if they aren't Muslim, just if they look like a brown person, so, or like have a beard. Um, so, that, so there I think the metaphor is accurate, so yeah. 
I guess a big part of it is that so one of my good friends from high school, she's Pakistani American, but her family, they're all from Pakistan. A lot of her relatives still live over there. And she, we, she'll tell me about a lot of the events that come up in her newsfeed that take place overseas. And it's crazy to see all of the horrible, like, acts that go on there you know the acts of terrorism the acts of you know just sheer like disregard for the human life and I'm not saying because it's a bad country far from it it's from what she's told me from what I know it's a beautiful place where all the people are just interesting and you know really well educated really fun people but we always hear about when it only affects people in like predominantly white countries and that's where I find it to be quite frustrating because it's like this is not just a white person's problem this is a pervasive issue throughout the entire world it's not just affecting people in Europe or in America it's affecting people everywhere and as such I don't feel like why should they have to like apologize for something that's even affecting their own communities for me it's a resounding no I don't know white people aren't asked to separate themselves from Dylan Roof, they're not. They're not asked to separate themselves from. Uh, you know, you look at rednecks or things like that. You know, there's not. They're not. Even the phrase "white trash" is like oppressive in itself because it. It means that there's trash. You know what I mean? There's a trash version of this. There's not. It means the rest is better. You know. So, yeah, it's no because you don't have to do that, and. Similarly, I mean, not to take it back to cops too much, but one of the problems people have with police is that they're very loyal to their kind, and they should be, because that is a fraternity in a sense. But, you know, you're all out there surviving. You all know each other's problems in that way. But when something like that happens, when a shooting like that happens, they stand united in a sense. And for better or for worse, there's no disavowing of these cops making these bad moves. There's always an excuse for them. So I don't think most of no, you shouldn't have to, because... For the most part, nobody else does. Well, I mostly agree with everyone uh, speaking before me. Uh, I usually like to be critical of all sorts of organized religions where criticism is due. But that being said, I don't think there's anything to justify uh, for or anything to apologize for if you're someone, if you're a person who practices his or her religion in a uh, peaceful and cooperative way. I don't think that, I think it's a very simplistic worldview to, to group everyone in, uh, well, obviously by uh, race, uh, gender, religion, or not into these groups of, okay, who's dangerous to us and who isn't. I think uh, the, the political rhetoric that makes use of this, um, this sort of very black and white worldview is uh, what's caused this wave of Islamophobia obviously in in the last few uh well even in the last few years in germany at least i agree wholeheartedly i mean if we ask muslims to start vowing obligation to america and whatever kind of physical markers that usually pertains to at one point i'm going to be told to drop my natural hair and straighten it at one point is a white man going to be told that they are the sin of the entire universe I mean, it never just ends at one thing. And when we start using language like this, like obligation, or as you were saying, black and white language, we're no longer having a discussion. It's the end of all discussions. And you know what? Terrorism is a real threat. We need to discuss this as a people because it's just as equally affecting Muslims as it is 
anyone else in the world. We need to have this conversation and we can't start by demands. Uh, this was uh, to bring back up Ayman al-Zawahiri again. This was the first thing he did after being tortured was they started killing regular Egyptian civilians because they were consumers and like people who were participating in this economic system that they held was exploiting the Arab world, the Middle East, you know, and they held them to be responsible for this, regular people. And, you know, when after 9-11, Osama bin Laden said, because America is a democracy, regular voters have decided the military policies of the country, so they are to blame. Regular civilians are to blame, not leaders, because it is a democracy, you know? And But, but what I mean to say is that, like, yes, the first victims of radicalization are the people in the area, the people who live in that place where someone was radicalized, the people who already were being impoverished by Western hegemony. So in naming a few mutants with questionable morals, uh, we have Apocalypse... Mystique, Magneto, now Emma Frost again, uh, the Hellfire Club, Celine. Celine's pretty fucked up. I mean, let's be honest. She sucks people's life force for no reason. I mean, M. Plate, he also is a life force sucker. Cassandra Nova, I mean, she is, I mean, not a nice lady. Let's be honest. She killed 16 million mutants just because she's the opposite of Xavier and his evil twin. She's like a slug person, right? She doesn't even have human form. She's a mamarumbai. I don't want to be Morphous, you know, but what's that? What's a mamarumbai? I'm not sure that's the pronunciation, but it's a Shi'ar belief that you, when you were born, your twin is, your soul twin is born in the womb. Oh, this is like the Japanese ghost story thing, right? Where people are jealous, like the the if you like like when Siamese twins are born, or when like twins are born and one fetus dies, it lives on as a ghost in feeling jealousy toward the one that lives on as a real human. You know, that's like a Japanese ghost story thing. Okay, yes, that's then I'm sure this is similar. Yeah, there's movies about this. That's very um, I'd like a list of those movies. Okay, yeah, and and others. So why is it so clear within the diegesis of the X-Men franchise, condemnation of all mutants based on the actions of select few is so wrong, while in real life, Islam as a whole appears to be blamed for the actions of a select few? Speaking from our point of view, the reader, I would say it's because um, the story is told from the protagonist's point of view. So naturally, as a reader, you know that you know, quote-unquote, they're the good guys, but also because... Um, you get to know who they are. You learn who like Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, Wolverine are versus uh, the Brotherhood Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. You really don't get to know who Toad is. <laughs> you don't. And um, and by saying that, I'm saying you compare that to real life. Um, people who are, I would say, racist probably aren't friendly with anybody of color. Um, aren't associated with anybody of color versus people who are not racist. And by people, I mean white people who are not racist. Um, do you have black friends, you have Asian friends, etc. So I think it's because um, you're able to get to know them. So we're able to see that the X-Men are good and that the Hellfire Club doesn't represent everybody because we know the good ones. That is true. There are studies that have been done that show exposure is a way to fight racism. Yeah, uh, just kind of going off of what Andrew was saying, I think that the difference is always that, I mean, I think it depends on your life experience, but in the comic, I get the chance to, like, for example, read a 13-issue series about Emma Frost, so that even though Emma Frost has done a lot of things that people will hate, I know her. Or, like, Magneto, I know his backstory, I know everything about him. I know why the motivation is for everything that goes wrong in these people's lives. Um, so even with the bad guys, I kind of have an understanding, but it's easier whenever you get to see these stories told 
that you understand. So for example, like, you know, I think about how, like, for example, my dad over Christmas break watched like every one of the OJ things that he could watch. And he was just like, Oh my God. And he's like explaining all these like really complicated, like race issues to me all of a sudden. And he's like, you know, I worked in my store and people would treat my voice way. And I would do some things that are questionable. And now I understand why that contributed to like a larger culture. Like, my father is saying phrases like culture of racism. I'm like, but the thing is my dad saw that stuff on those movies and stuff and he understood it. So I think that that's one of the things with like when I read X-Men, I have a very good understanding of all of these issues or I watch the movies. Um, but I don't think that happens as much at all. Um, with Islam, you know, it's like they have like, maybe like a man who you or is implied is um, practicing Islam that like drives your cab or owns a, convenience store you don't necessarily get the chance to like see these people's lives on the inside and what it actually means for them and make those connections i think that's one of the other reasons why miss marvel is so great because you get to see like an actual life being lived so i think that's the reason why this religion especially in our country is so disenfranchised because people can't separate between the two it's just like the other group and it's even worse than other groups because at least some of them have broken through and gotten the chance to tell those stories while this one has been kind of confined um still to kind of the type and not to the individual and the personal so in terms of people being able to understand the X-Men, but not being able to see that parallel with Islam, I think it's because, unfortunately, people might have an easier time inserting themselves into a fictional narrative than they would empathizing with real people. And I, I think that's kind of selfish and a little bit, um, a little bit ignorant. And like, you kind of, if you're reading X-Men and you're not able to see that the mutant metaphor extends to something like that, then you're really missing the point. But I think, I think that's it. I think people just have an easier time seeing themselves within the X-Men's narrative and finding some moral ground within their own actions than they do empathizing with real people that it's happening to today. I mean, I've been talking to a lot of people who are not really X-Men enthusiasts, but who have seen like some of the movies and maybe read a couple of comic books. I think that it's easy to ignore the metaphor if that's what you wish and to just get into it, just uh, read a story about uh, a certain set of characters about this action narrative, this like comic book trope kind of plot, if that's what you're searching for. And I mean, I feel like it's also easy to, to get into the material and realize the metaphor without realizing that you're uh, quote unquote part of the problem. Uh, when it comes to real life um, permutations of, of this uh, conflict, I guess. Um, so it's easy to tell yourself that, of course, uh, discrimination is bad. And of course, um, we should emphasize with the with, uh, position that X-Men and mutants and marginalized groups in general are in and still being ignorant about these things. And I think that some of this is even reflected within the X-Men comics when we see uh, news reporters making these generalizations against, uh, uh, for instance, in uh, Colin Bunn's Uncanny X-Men against mutant kind in general based on what they think uh, Magneto has done to to his island Genosha. And I think that this kind of reflects uh, a similar attitude in right-wing media, especially before and after the, the Trump election. 
Marius, I'm nodding my head like it's the first time I heard a rap album because everything you were saying, I agree with. Um, Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, I think, I mean, I had to write some of this down, but like you're saying that, it's it's easy to forget what, that I love Spider-Man or I love the X-Men. And there are people who like the things I like, but they're racist and they're Islamophobic. You know, I make that joke all the time, but there are Spider-Man fans who call Miles Morales the N-word. And they're mad. You know, um, what are they mad about? I mean, that's not my Spider-Man, you know, not my president. They're mad that he's black. I mean, that's got to be they feel like he's being replaced and his name is Spider-Man. Why not just give him a different name? Because it's not your job. I mean, somebody wanted to do that and that's it. Were you bit by a radioactive spider? And they'll be like, no. And they'll be like, shut the f up and read. No, but I live in my mom's basement. That's good enough. Yeah. Did you bust your ass to make comic books and then one day tell your own story? Exactly. You know? Like, how's that gluten-free pizza your mom bought for you, bitch? But <laughs> to answer the question... Oh, I'm sorry. No, you go on. To answer the question, uh, I mean, the answer is ignorance, right? That's pretty much it. And X-Men is an, accept X -Men is an accepted uh, narrative at this point. We all know what it's about, kind of. Uh, obviously there are different iterations, things like that, but it's accepted. Boom. But there's something that's not in X-Men. There's not counter media. You know, there's like, there's not Fox News and MSNBC telling you, you're right, you're right, you're right. Or you're right, you're right, you're right. I mean, how many people were affected by fake news in the election? You know, people go to imright.com to quote Bill Burr and they see their points and they see somebody saying, oh, yeah, Hillary Clinton's a monster. Donald Trump is a rapist. You know, I mean, like whatever it is, whatever that argument is, they can find it. You can in this day and age, you can go to a website and all your beliefs can be validated for you on some level, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. And it happens on the news. So I think the the argument is then that, yeah, X-Men is not going to be toyed with in that aspect. But there are constant counter arguments. And so when you hear your news channel telling you, referring to these people as terrorists and white kids as disturbed, mm -hmm. your reality is changed based on that perception. And I just wanted to point out that gluten-free pizza is pretty good. I'm not. It's really uh, dry. I, I disagree. Yeah. I mean, I, I like Domino's. I mean, you guys have all just made like mind-blowingly really well verbalized points. Um... I, it's, so I'm going to be bringing in a film to this because that's how I know most of life. And also because I do think that this is very relevant, a big part of like, so I'm looking at the list and honestly, personally, Mystique is my favorite in the list just because I find her to be really fun. But that's the thing. She does awful things, like objectively awful things, but I still love her and I love the struggle that she's gone through. I love, you know, her character, everything about her because she's a character. She's easy to follow a narrative. I know, I feel like I know this character like I would a family member, somebody who I can completely relate to. And there's a British mockumentary. I'm not sure if I would recommend it, but <laughs> well, mostly because it is a mockumentary about a British terrorist organization. And a big part of the movie is essentially humanizing like why do these individuals feel the need to become this terrorist organization i should also know they're not particularly good at what they do um and that's part of how they're 
it's easier to watch than it would be. But I remember like when I was first hearing the reviews about it and like analysts speak on this movie, it's like, you know, this needing this sense of needing to feel like you belong, like the community that we have with comic books, this community that we have, you know, based on really anything. That's kind of why people feel the need to do these sorts of things. So when you see these groups and you see like these very honestly terrifying images of people in a land I've never been to with faces I don't recognize fighting amongst each other. They're coming from a place of a very similar attitude that I have of just wanting to feel like you belong somewhere. And I mean, that's really easy to forget when all you hear are news stories about bombs going off in some other country that you may not be fully familiar with. I just had a quick thing about Miles Morales. Um, I love him. He is the love of my life. Um, I went as him for Comic-Con. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, it was fun. Um, anyway, I just wanted to say uh, it was really special to see a black boy in the city be invincible. It really, like, changed my life. That's why I loved Luke Cage as well. Like, I especially loved the hoodie of Luke Cage. Like, Luke Cage wearing the, like, iconic, unfortunately, hoodie that, you know, so many men have died in and just, like, listening to Wu-Tang and kicking ass, like, oh, my God, it was, like, all I could have ever wanted to. I was just giving a shout-out to Miles Morales watching, like, I think at one point he, um, he buys a pack of Skittles and he makes it home. And I just, like, started crying because some other black boys bought some Skittles and they did not make it home. What I have to say is just that like in like some con some distant conflict as you say Mara right like we read one side of the conflict as terrorists and the other side as like state actors who are legitimate it's just arbitrary you know like a terrorist is the the generic bad word of today but it just means someone who doesn't have their own military to use who still wants to fight you know, and they, there are good reasons to fight, there are bad reasons to fight, of course. But, like, they're resorting to terrorism, obviously, for the reason that they don't have legitimate... Terrorism just means illegitimate warfare, you know, or, as people like Noam Chomsky would say, asymmetrical warfare, where one side is not as powerful as the other side, right? And I guess I owe it to anarchists to point out that 100 years ago, the term anarchist was used in this way. It was, uh, and like 100 years before that, Democrat was used in this way, literally. Like, it would be used as a blanket term for people who are opposing the standard order of things, who are using violence to do it because violence is being used against them. And yes, some of them were being very ruthless, uh, unsympathetically ruthless, but other ones were just being painted with that term because it was convenient for those in power. Just going back a little bit to talk about, you know, what I was saying about media and also that, also saying that it's a group that it doesn't have a military. I don't know if it was South Dakota, I forget where, but there was a group of people who, a group of white citizens who held up some spot in one of these states. That was Oregon. It was Oregon, right? And they were called, they were referred to as a militia. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and they were constantly referred to as a militia. I'm like, they have guns. They're ready to shoot the police. Yeah. And they're not terrorists. They were terrorists. And they're not, you know, they're not these things on the news. And that is a, that is, that is that lie that we're talking about. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's whiteness. But also, there's no accountability in that sense. And that is a big problem with America. You know, we don't, we're not, we don't hold our injustices accountable. We repaint them. Christopher Columbus found America. It was bullshit. You know, he killed 
and and raped and you know and in rape gave STDs. There was genocide there. We talk about you know we're talking about uh, the civil rights movement. It's we paint it in a very nice way where you know you were talking about passive uh, you know protests and all that. That's kind of like if you knew the real shit behind it, you would bug the fuck out. And if kids learn from a very early age, like we were talking about, if black kids learn from a very early age, we're talking about the Cleveland show where the kid didn't know that black people were slaves. If you knew from a real young age what was being done to your people, that generational trauma, you would bug out. You would fight the system hard. And we can't do that in America. We can't acknowledge those things because we're scared to lose that power. And certain people are scared to lose dominant culture. And then on, on that note, too, um, and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, so if I word it correctly... Um, you were just talking about why people bug out like that. And so many of us just kind of look at what the action is and you're like, oh my God, people died. That's awful because it is awful no matter which way you look at it. But I think it's important and I feel like a lot of people don't look at it this way to see why that's happening and you pointed that out. When you look at terrorists who come from the Middle East, a lot of us are just like, oh, they're just flying planes, et cetera. But you have to look at why. You have to look at US um, imperialism. Like we literally kill kids Every like, and I can't say every day, but like every year, like for bombs, like we just did in the last two months, we killed yeah. a kid, yeah. Um, some and, of our own citizens as well. And no one, I think Alex. you said something similar to this, but like, depending who's doing it, like our acts can be seen as terrorism. It's just like if we're dropping bombs on you and you're a hospital, it's kind of like, how can you not deem that as terrorism? Because that happened in Philadelphia, where I'm from, like, that's the first thing I would think. So if I was at a city. Um, in the East, I would think the same thing. Yeah, I'm sorry, just real quick. If you want to create a terrorist, look at what we've done to these countries. They say is, there's, it's no secret why they're able to get kids to sign up for ISIS when you see your brother and mother blown up at the dinner table. You know what I mean? Like, and when 9-11 happened, I was a very young kid, and I didn't know who to blame for that. I certainly didn't want to go and kill anybody, but when I saw it happening, I was like, that's the face, that's the man they're telling us to kill, then we should kill him. And we don't, you know, I'm not saying that evil people shouldn't be taken down or whatever but but speaking of accountability we have killed a lot of children overseas we have killed a lot of innocent people overseas in the name of doing what we believe to be right and just look at world war ii like you talked about kids signing up um so many people at age 16 through 20 were just down to go down and fight because hitler was an obvious evil they had people who died Captain so you look America. at yeah oh yeah that too but um where you felt affected by it, you felt a reason to fight, you felt like it was gonna invade you. So obviously when you're on the other side, you're seeing America invading you, I would possibly think the same way. The Lord's Resistance Army, also known as the LRA, run by Joseph Coney, is responsible for heinous acts. To name a few, the recruitment of child soldiers, forcing children to kill their own parents and siblings to remain alive, the mutilation of women's bodies, including the cutting off of breasts as a form of humiliation, rape as a form of humiliation, infanticide, and so many more things that we unfortunately don't have the time to mention or are too disgusting to mention, uh, sadly. In November 2015, a Christian terrorist committed the Colorado Springs Plant Parenthood shooting. The National Liberation Front of Tripura, I hope that's how you pronounce it, in India believes in the forced and violent conversion of Hindus and Muslims to Christianity using rape as a method of coercion. There are countless examples of Christian terrorist attacks occurring within the last several years. So my question is, why is Christianity exempt from being painted with the same broad brush Islam is often painted with? 
I mean, the answer is very simple. Christians have militaries, so they're not terrorists. They they have their own militaries. You know, like if I wanted to go fight this culture war, all I would have to do is join the military. I don't have to resort to joining a terrorist organization. You know, it's it's there's nothing more complicated about it than that. Just looking at it from a historical standpoint, and also just for like full disclosure, I definitely like I was raised Catholic, so I'm like, yeah, we can be the worst. Um, <laughs> And, you know, historically speaking, especially when, um, you know, the British Empire, France, when they were about to spread their influence all over the world, one of the big things that they brought with them was Christianity. They were sort of importing their religion all over the place. As such, it became so pervasive and so, like, domineering. It's almost hard to kind of stop it at this point. Like, even though I believe the current statistics are it's not the most it's now currently not the predominant religion in the world. People still have like the strange association of it being, you know, such a prominent figure within historical events. Like how could the church be doing all these things? The church has done awful things like it has, but you know, it's hard sometimes to separate this historical imperialistic context from the modern day. Even if it has been, you know, hundreds of years in the future, it's kind of like, it's kind of like almost a cultural, I don't want to call it a cultural trauma, but it almost kind of seems that way with how people are just really afraid to confront some of the greater evils that aspects of this religion have brought. I believe more often than not in the West, when we do talk about Islam, we're not talking about an ideology or belief. We're talking skin tone and how a certain person looks because there are blonde-haired, blue-eyed Muslim women in the U.S., in Asia, in Africa right now as we speak. Islam, I think, is just slaying for a set of certain cultural codes that we prescribe, and it's often brown skin. It's another way of saying the other, of defining America, a specific America that does not necessarily represent everyone in this room, or certainly not everyone in this country. Yes. <laughs> Right. That's I mean, that's what that is. I mean, Mahershala Ali wins the Oscar for uh, supporting actor Moonlight. For, in Moonlight. Oh. And oh. and he goes up there and he talks about being a Muslim and what that means to him and how his mother was a Christian and how I believe a Christian. She may have been something else, but how they disagreed on that front, you know, and but they still love each other. They're still able to get along. And I mean, yeah. This guy, this is what I think a Muslim looks like. I know, I mean, and in my own community, in the Hispanic community, in the black community, there is, there's people that don't like Muslim people and they don't know what it means. And they're raised Christian, which is a faith that was f forced upon their people years ago. That God wasn't so merciful then, you know? Uh, so, or I guess he was, depending on how they look at the situation, but... Yeah, I mean, it is just an image thing, I think, in my mind. This uh, reminds me of another pair of figures that I wanted to add to the kind of Xavier-Magneto dichotomy, in addition to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, which is uh, Muhammad Ali and O.J. Simpson. But uh, Both are athletes. Both are very beloved by the American public in their ways or were at a time, you know, and like Muhammad Ali converted to Islam just as Malcolm X did out of a belief that that is the religion that stands for dark skinned people's rights. 
and he very avidly did so, and he avoided the draft in Vietnam because that's just a white man's war over natural resources in Southeast Asia, which it absolutely was. I don't want to hear anyone say that it wasn't, but whereas O.J. Simpson... Uh, for most of his life felt this pressure, a natural pressure, a pressure I think that all minorities feel. I don't know because I'm white, but I assume so. They feel this pressure to be as white as they can, you know, to, to, to fit in and to, and, um, and O.J. Simpson, he really did it. And that really added to the, to the kind of shock when he was put on trial, to the dissatisfaction that people felt. Well, oh, he's not as white as we thought. Oh, he's not, he's, he's, He's way more kind of black than we thought. Isn't that scandalous? You know, he's he's in a car chase at thirty miles an hour. Whoa, you know the and and I just think that's another like pair of figures that we could draw that we could uh, kind of like compare this to. And I don't want to be too hard on Professor X, of course, but yeah, you're waiting to say something, Andrew. I just I love that you mentioned that, but also because all we do is look at the uh, the the Martin Luther King, Malcolm X whole thing, Malcolm X. And Muhammad Ali had a very bad relationship after because they made Muhammad Ali the golden boy of, uh, because Malcolm X disagreed with the leaders. But the, and the quote, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's the exact quote because I'm probably not as eloquent as Kat in this situation. Uh, I didn't write it down. But the quote is, you want me to fight for you, but you won't fight for me here. You want me to kill people. They've never done anything to me. If I have an enemy, it's you. You're in my way when I want progress. You're in my way when I want equality. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's such a great, I mean, two people bring up. Also, O.J. Simpson is like the black friend that white people brought up when they then they claim not to be racist. Oh, my God. And then, when he, oh my and then God. when he killed his wife and he got off, white people felt betrayed, not just by O.J. Simpson, but their best friend, the justice system. You know, the one and that always protects them. The, the one, one that, that stands always protects up for them. them all the time, like, yeah. You know, and so when O.J. did it, they were like, oh, not O.J., not my friend O.J., who's was on my Wheaties box. <laughs> you know, not my friend OJ, who's, you know, in those commercials, not my friend OJ, whose drink, whose name is a breakfast drink. My friend OJ, the black murderer who killed a white woman and her lover, I'm assuming, and maybe even the cat, everybody in that situation. Uh, but, but, you know, it, they felt betrayed by that as, aspect. And Muhammad Ali didn't put himself in a position to, to do that to anyone. He was who he was. And there is a pressure to, to feel white. You know what I mean? Even when you just speak in an educational manner, people say you're speaking like a white person. I like this idea of passing as well, um, because if you look at it, uh, bringing it back to X-Men, Professor X, I feel like, tries to blend in more with humans, whereas Magneto's like, nah, look at this badass helmet. Like, <laughs> He flies around everywhere. He doesn't need to fly. He just wants to, to show everyone he's immune. And that's definitely uh, relatable to all these other figures we were talking about. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I mean, this affects me personally. Um, I can white pass a lot of the time. Other times I can't. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's, I kind of use it in the same way that Professor X does. When I can white pass, I use it to like sneak onto their side and I'm like, but what about this? And they're like, well, I never thought of it like that. And it's like, but then when I'm not, I like the like sense of a community that Magneto feels because he's, he's like, if you're immune, you know I'm immune. Like, I'm for you, you know? Um, so I think like the idea of passing and like, this also comes up with like uh like rogue as a mutant has a very different um has a very different connection to the battle for mutant equality than like 
I don't know, like a, like a mutant who like looks normal or like, um, you know, cause rogue, you know, just kills people at the touch. You know, she has to wear gloves all the time versus like, I don't know. I can't think of a normal mutant right now, whatever. Um, so yeah, I think this idea of passing and also like what you look like, uh, can go also to the Islam question. There are a lot of Muslims that look white that can pass that don't have to go through the same thing. Um, that maybe don't wear a hijab, uh, things like that. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's so interesting that you mentioned mutants as a metaphor for, for passing because then you have mutants like Mystique and Nightcrawler who are, who look so different, but they're so proud of what they look like and they have the option to look more human. Like Mystique, obviously she's a shapeshifter and then Nightcrawler had that image inducer, but which he abandoned. So they embrace what they look like. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely relate to that too. Well, I think the most interesting thing about that cat is like, I think in one of the um, articles we read, I'm trying to remember which one it is. I think it's mutant readers reading mutants, appropriation, assimilation. Um, the writer points out how um, when they were fighting the Morlocks, either for the first time or one of the times after that, um, Nightcrawler, who is one of the characters who looks different, he like kind of um, yells at one of the Morlocks saying like they're doing everything wrong and that they need to embrace who they are because like, it happened for him. It can happen for all of them. And I kind of, I kind of took that as like, well, you're just kind of like the one who they think is okay, but you can't speak for everybody like that. And, um, I forget exactly what the writer said, but I thought that was a very interesting point. I never thought about it like that before. Um, going back to that conversation of passing, they explore that so much in the movies. Uh, they're in first class, I think, Beast talks to Mystique and he's like, you know, I, I don't want to look this way. I don't want to look this way. Mystique has had that issue throughout the series. But my favorite moment uh, was seeing Mystique and Alan Cumming playing Nightcrawler in X2. And he says, you know, they say you can mimic anybody, even their voice. And she goes, even their voice. And he like looks back and he gets scared and he, he goes, so then why not look normal all the time? And she doesn't even look at him. She's just like, because we shouldn't have to. You know, it's pretty fantastic. I wanted to bring this back to the comics for a second because it reminds me of Iceman in the Chuck Austin era of X-Men, which is not very uh, well liked by really anyone but me. And if you guys remember, we read it last year, My Heart Goes One Way, and what was it, Marius? What's that line? She lies with angels. My heart How goes... How can I go this way when my heart wants to go the other way? I mean, I, you know, I've been pondering that every fucking day when was his run? last year. I mean, I don't, I don't know off the top it's of my head. It's actually kind of beautiful in the sense that it's kind of like if Romeo and Juliet was like bad. It was bad? <laughs> like it was bad? <laughs> you just sit there and you're just like so much potential, not reaching it. But they really, they, you can tell they thought they were reaching it. I did like the song at the end. And I just want to say that I, if, uh, as far as Romeo and Juliet's tropes go, which I fucking hate, I would rather read She Lies with Angels than Saga and read about like a tree and a reindeer. And I just want to put that up. I'm not going to comment on that, but I will say that um, in She Lies with Angels, it's just like so proud of its story that like, even if you don't like it, you have to just like give it props. Cause it's just like, this is fucking love. Like things conflict and you're like, you can't deny. So we're gonna talk about Inhumans versus X-Men in terms of globalism versus populism. This is extremely hard for me to admit, sorry about screaming, but this is the first real world parallel for Inhumans versus X-Men that came to me 
Again, globalism versus populism for a number of reasons. Let me explain why. On one hand, Marvel's lack of creative control over X-Men films have prompted Marvel to raise the profile of the Inhumans in the Marvel Universe, therefore decreasing my life and soul force. It's globalism within the diegesis of the Marvel Universe and um, almost like a form of immigration. And uh, as an X-Men fan, for the first time ever, I find myself on the side of populism, but only within the diegesis of Marvel Comics, not in actual um, life, which I guess is, is a good thing. So in all seriousness, while it might be a stretch, there are a lot of real-world parallels for Inhumans versus X-Men in terms of what seems to be the real war of globalism versus populism. Tensions don't seem to have ever been as high as they are now regarding the issue. In the last year since part one of X-Men The Dream aired, a wave of populism swept Western countries. We now have things like Brexit and the Trump administration. Sorry, I just shit my pants when I said that uh, to contend with. So anyway, am I alone in this? And were there aspects of Death of X and Inhumans versus X-Men that reminded anyone of what's been going on in the world lately? Um, no, because in a comic book, you get to hear both sides, and we don't, and that's it. So, like, in both sides in the comic are the Inhumans and the X-Men. Both sides in the real world are what, like, Alex Jones against globalism and Barack Obama for globalism? Or who, who are we talking about here, you know? Like, what, what's the, what are the two sides? In the I can world? answer, but he should answer. I'd like you to answer first. Oh, and me, it's rural... In terms of what I'm talking about right now, it's it's city it's city populations versus rural populations. It feels like because it seems like it's a similar thing that happened in Brexit is happening in other parts of Europe, and um, you know people in cities are more okay with globalism. And you know we've been dealing with immigration for a long time. People in rural areas are seeing their jobs go overseas. They're seeing factories close. They're seeing their families. I don't want to say ripped apart. It's ridiculous. But seeing their families, right, um, right, right. You know, having to move uh, far that's away called, for jobs. Yeah, and stuff. That's called irredentism. The like a uh, favoring of one's own local place. The irredentism. To answer your question, then, yes, that. But uh, although we kind of know what the other people are thinking, there are these bubbles where we refuse to kind of believe it or see it from that point of view. When you're looking at it from a comic book, you can attach those feelings to faces that feel like your friends. You know, like we were discussing before. I feel like what kind of reminded me of this analogy to the, to, well, globalism versus populism or in general, like political discourse in, in recent years is that uh, you get the sense of, okay, we can't even talk to the other side because they're not going to take our arguments seriously or they're not going to take into consideration our point of view. And I mean, it can be criticized that this is what the X-Men would do. They would just go into full-on war with the Inhumans. But at the same time, I think from the X-Men's perspective, it, it, it's more uh, understandable. And I'm going to get into later why I think the X-Men work as a metaphor for something else as well. But you could say that this is kind of uh, an analogy to, uh, well, the radicalization of right-wing populists, for instance, in Germany, because uh, many of them have the sense of, okay, the government is not going to be listening to us. The government wants to, you know, get involved in the EU and get all the uh, asylum seekers into into Germany, which, like, from their perspective, uh, that's, that's how things look like. And that's, uh, they wouldn't even want to discuss their views with anybody 
uh, and just go out there and, you know, like set a fire, like refugee camps, which is uh, majorly fucked up. Uh, I'm not going to say that what the X-Men do in, 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 um, in humans versus X-Men is the same or even really comparable to that because, well, as I said, I think there's more to the, to the X-Men metaphor or the X-Men experience in this, uh, in this specific comic book. But I mean, at least, I mean, you could go and compare it to like radicalization in general when uh, political discourse stops functioning. You know, you're completely right, Marius, but um, I guess I kind of have sort of a weird way of going about it. Despite living in a more urban area now, I have lived and know people from much more like poor white socioeconomic rural areas so i do feel like this kind of like it's weird hearing people like not under i guess it's not uncommon for people not to be able to see both sides of the divide but you know that's very much so a big part of my life and it's frustrating because you know they don't they don't want to demonize the other side it feels but they just feel so frustrated and they feel so attacked by what they have done that it's almost like there's no other option. And I'm not saying that they're, what they're feeling is always validated because I don't always, I obviously don't agree with them. I chose to live in an urban area, but it's almost like the fact that people really do want to say that, you know, and that's where I think the comic book works is that they are presenting both sides and they're presenting them both like, well, we need to look out for our own kind. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's honestly how it's perceived there. As sad as that is, you know, they see their cousins getting unemployed and in such a small circle of people that they know, it's a huge deal. And when they feel like their voices weren't being heard, I mean, that's how we got the result that we got. And again, they're not perfect, but... It's just, it's, it sucks, I guess. Mara, do you mind if I ask you a fairly difficult question? Uh, yeah. Uh, this has been a big debate on the left ever since Trump got elected. Uh, like, well, like, why did a lot of white people vote for Trump? Did they do it because he was doing a better job of um, kind of like broadcasting the traditional left wing liberal uh, or left of center let's say talking points of like bring back jobs bring back infrastructure or did they do it because he used a lot of racist dog whistle kind of tactics and they loved that shit i don't know? think they would ever admit it's racism yeah and nobody because, would right i mean no because nobody would and they don't see it as racism, if that makes sense. And I'm saying they in a very generalizing tense. I'm not, and again, not everybody in this context, but some of the people who I know, they are very passionate about, you know, making sure like when the, a good family friend of mine who is a driving instructor, one of the things that he took me and my brother to do uh, when we were learning how to drive is we went by this uh, Royal Farms. It's like a gas station supermarket thing. And he was telling us, uh, we went to the counter, we got some snacks for the road and we were leaving. He was telling us how he knew the girl working behind the counter. And he's like, this is the best job 
that she'll ever be able to get. He knew her from her days in high school, and that's really where his frustration was. I'm not saying it's justified, and I think what's really frustrating is that they can't see that they do have it kind of better than what a lot of people of color would be going through in their situation. But since it's so homogenized and so like small a community, it's very hard to see past their own issues, if that makes sense. And I'm again, I don't mean to like say that either side is right or wrong, and I, I'm just trying to <laughs> play the center, yeah. I think it was definitely a mix of things. My problem with it was, um, if it wasn't racism, you saw the racism that was taking place and you decided that it wasn't a deal breaker. You know, um, I think no matter how much fake news was there, you like his racism, his sexism, his homophobia was like, it was completely unavoidable. So I feel like no matter how bad you thought Hillary was, you know, no matter how like much like I know a lot of people liked Bernie and then switched to Trump. That's still I still stay up at night thinking about that. Um, one, of, one of my uncles did that. Yeah. Um, Damn. And yeah, I think no matter what your reasoning was, no matter if you have the best reason in the world, you thought that racism was not a deal breaker. You thought his like Mexican rhetoric was not the end of the line. So. Um, I. I struggle with that completely. That idea that it wasn't a deal breaker on all these fronts. Because when I look at who voted for Trump, in essence, it's like me asking, it's, I don't know, it's like me asking, it's like me asking a bird not to fly. You know? Because you a man. No, not just that though. I mean, I mean, I'm the dark. Uh, trust me, that's not it. It's just a matter of like, it's it's white, it's white supremacy. Like, even if it wasn't, make you not privileged. Okay, no, I'm no not one, saying that though. Wait, wait, not, none of this conversation has been on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what Andrew was responding no, to saying, was like, hey, saying. I'm saying that obviously it's yeah, it's not a deal breaker for some people. I'm offended by that on many levels, but maybe that it's not like it's a natural thing. But was anybody really surprised? I mean, I was surprised. It's not. It's not I was about. Surprised. It's not about a. F it's not about a fight. We've been here before. You know, just because it has a different phrase and it doesn't say these things so blatantly, we've been here before. Our government, you know, oppresses over history has oppressed. You know, uh, people of color, women. You know, this is this is a, this is like this is just what you thought you were going to get eight years of Barack and it was going to be all you know all jeezy after that no it's it's a simple matter of that is white supremacy and although i believe that trump is the last bite of white supremacy i hopefully. think that uh, hopefully i think that yes i live in a world that exists in that way i don't like it i'm i'm just not surprised and i'm not surprised that people use that argument you know what i mean in the same way i just i think that it's, it was people looking at their lifestyle being threatened and when we talk about traditionalist roles, there are women who voted against their own interests because of stupid ass systems like that. And we call it traditionalism, but it's abuse. We call it traditionalism, but it's racism. Many poor white men did so as well. They voted against their own interests. Uh, we haven't just been this way before. We've never stopped being this way. I will now shut up. And I think Rachel was next. Yeah, Rachel, then Alex. Okay. Thank you, good sir. Okay, I'm not defending Trump when I say this, but Here before, we go. thank you, Alex. <laughs> but 
But before I talked about being open to discussion, so if I'm going to talk the talk, I have to do the walk. The only way I can understand the global world community is through my own personal lens. I can't comprehend all of humanity. I can barely comprehend what I had for breakfast a few hours later. And as somebody that deals with mental health, some days I don't, I can't comprehend what's going to happen the next hour, and I don't want to. In order to understand others, you at least have to begin by understanding what's around you. So I'm not saying this is a solution. I'm not justifying anyone. But if we're going to talk about globalism and populism, I do think they come from a similar tree. They're different branches of something. I'm just, again, I want to just go back to that argument of like it wasn't a deal breaker thing. It, like he was saying, it's never been a deal breaker. That's my point, is it's never been a deal breaker. Just to also connect this back a little bit to the Inhumans versus X-Men thing. I think, I was going to say, I just think that talking about globalism and populism is an interesting comparison um, because, you know, I don't know a ton about the Inhumans. I was actually talking to Marius and Kat before about how I felt like I, like, missed a birthday when it came to their personal mission statement because I couldn't understand why anyone would think they were right. So I was going to say, I guess in some ways you might be able to say because of that, I see a comparison in the sense that I look at the inhuman side um, of this conflict. And I'm just like, so you like want to maybe make more people who are like you um, and they may not want that, but whatever. And it's going to have this really adverse effect on a large part of a different population. Um, and to me, that just like read completely tone deaf, but I see how there is some conflict there. And it's like, I mean, obviously I love the X-Men and I love what they stand for. So for me, it's very simple. I'm like, I prefer that. Whereas I think if I had more sympathy for the inhuman ideal, I might think otherwise. But so I think that's why there's something interesting to be said here. And especially hearing everyone else talk so passionately about it. Um, because I think for me, I'm not sure I'm making the proper comparison here. But like for me, I feel like with this whole political situation, I was kind of the one on the expert side. And I'm like, obviously this is bad. And it's having adverse effects on lots of disenfranchised groups. So like how can we get past it? Whereas, like, on the inhuman side, it was kind of like, uh, we want this for us, and we don't really, I mean, I think it's probably bad, but, like, is that really the worst? Like, it's like we have to take care of our own. I think there is some comparison there in the sense that I felt like it was so obvious to me the whole time I was reading that arc that the X were on the side of justice and the disenfranchised and those who are being wronged. But I think that, like, it felt the same way in the sense I was like, I missed something here. Cause like everyone on this other side, on the inhuman side seems to have this personal philosophy that I do not understand at all. Cause I just don't see it as an issue. Um, and I think that's kind of the same with how like I've tried to read a million articles about Trump supporters and their disenfranchisement and I kind of get it, but like, I don't, I never do. I'm always still falling firmly on the side of those who I can see are clearly being maligned as we all talked about before. Yeah, I was actually surprised by the election because I feel like most racists like covert racism. So I thought people would vote for Clinton because she's a covert racist. Um, Sorry, hot take. Um, I don't know. All of her like legislature in the 80s with uh, her husband. Yeah. So I yeah. So I uh, I thought people would opt for that. And I guess technically more people did because she won the popular vote. But um, I don't know. I thought like the Senate would also go for that. Like I felt like they could accomplish roughly like a lot of the same things that they wanted to with Wall Street, all these things. Um, but she is a woman. Also, that's that, what I think. It, yeah. Also, she has a vagina. So actually, I don't like, even know that. So they were like, uh, no, 
Like, it just reminds me of the Sean Spicer thing where he was only pissed off that Melissa McCarthy played him on SNL. It's not even the fact that he was being made fun of. It was like, oh, like, I'm bummed that a woman played me. It's like, you need to calm down. Like, your fragile male ego is, it's like, so fragile. So, so fragile. Like, oh, no. Like, like it's just, I don't know. Yeah, they're like, we already gave you a black person. Like, come on. Like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> you got one. We, we got eight years, okay? So, like, we waited eight years, you wait however long he was uh, like she's so mean she's not smiling at me like most women do you know she's she wears mean pantsuit. To me. she's not sexy uh, yeah she's like standing up for herself what the f- you so know? rude so rude of her i appreciate andrew that you specified because obviously i get really salty really fast because i'm sure most women or most um marginalized groups can relate where it's like it's really hard not to get like your gut instinct where you're just like like no like no and you know like because i was just like thinking about what you were saying about police too where it's like a really small part of you is like go yourself like i don't care but then that's what's so problematic because populism kind of promotes this idea of like okay i'm here to protect myself and the people that i feel safest with which makes sense only in the context that you want to go past that and like be able to develop from that because i think that there's validity in doing that only with the intention of spreading it because, you know, it's kind of like how you can't really help another person until you help yourself. So you, like, do whatever's close proximity to you and then expand. But I think that it's, some it's like, the hardest step is making that step from there to, like, something more global because you have to, like, you have to have an imagination. You have to, like, think about why people do things and it's kind of like kink shaming in the sense because you're just like, I don't know why you're doing this. I don't get it. And it's not my thing. But sure. And you're just like really disgusted. But you're like, okay, like you're allowed to exist, I guess. And then you have to like, but then that's part of the challenge of being a human being, though, is to like think about, okay, how do we work on that together? How do we make a compromise where you don't kill people? Or you don't marginalize people. And it's hard because, like, any extremist is bad, I think. Like, because it's just, it's too extra. Like, you can't, you can't just be, like, you know, I get really riled up about, like, how PC culture can be really bad and can be really stifling because people use it improperly, which is what humans do. We're all, we make mistakes. But at the same time, like, you have to balance between, like, oh, like, I forgive you for the mistakes and how stupid you sound right now. And I'm trying to teach you, but I'm trying also not to not lose my shit or die. So you're just, you know, like, it's hard. So that's all part of the challenge, I think. I don't even know if this is we're bringing up anymore, but two points. Um, going back to what Kay, Maya, and Andrew were saying, I think it's both the white and male ego that took over this election. Because if you look at history... Um, the black male got the vote before the woman did. So I think that kind of repeated itself here. But again, going back to what Jamie said, I actually sympathize with the Inhumans more than the X-Men. I thought the X-Men kind of um, behaved in traditional behavior where they just kind of attacked without thinking. And because as Medusa points out, when they explained the plan, she was just like, why didn't you just tell us? Yeah, we would have gotten rid of the cloud, no problem. And they were just like, oh shit. And um, the last five issues became moot. I feel like the Inhumans are kind of like millennials. I, f- I feel like oh. being humans are like the the white people. Well, they complain <laughs> about their anxiety. Yeah, like, and we just like talk. Like, we should just talk. Yeah, right? the yeah. X Men are like they're like the white people in that sense. They're like the X Men have been 
screwed over by everyone for years. You thought that, what, a cloud that was killing them? You think that they were just going to let that fall in the hands of somebody else and be like, oh, yeah, if you just told us, it's like, well, history has shown me that if I just told you, you'd still fucking kill me. Yeah, you guys are completely right about the whole racist angle and just like everything that kind of goes into the like the political spectrum. But like this weird placating both sides, like I, I won't tell them that I'm doing this. Yeah, this was my that was my summer job last year <laughs> um, was having to be the only liberal working in a place where everyone was fairly not not that and being forced to like make them see like hey there's more outside of the world than um what you see and it's so frustrating because like you don't want to believe that they're just bad people with bad morals you you just don't want to believe that but it's it's sometimes you're just like okay well i i can't i don't know how to like handle this sort of like tension that you're kind of feeling so i i just really like yeah that's a that's a struggle man yeah no i have to even say if, uh for myself until i really spent five weeks in mormon country i definitely had my reservations as to the ethics of um trump voters but it, it it's such a radically different perspective their worlds just like ours is put together in such a a unique way that it's i mean look i don't get it and i can't believe i'm sticking up for it but there i i just want to say people that disagree with people who voted for trump the people i met uh were really really great people i just like when um trump won and hillary lost and like i would say 99 percent of my friends were so upset like whatever as they should have been um i think it's important to note not that it's right but like this is how all those voters felt in 2008 when Obama won. And I think it's really interesting just not necessarily to agree with it. Like, I'm not agreeing with why they felt that way, but they, the emotion was still real in them. So I think it's just so interesting how some of these political sides are so polar opposites. And I think that it's really easy to interpret someone uh, sticking up for, or not even sticking up for, but talking about the other side as an ex like making it excusable. But it's not that actions that are excusable; it's just an explanation. It's like, no, dude, like this sucks for them because of X, Y, and Z. Doesn't mean I agree with it. Doesn't mean it's right or whatever. It just means that that's what's happening. Yeah, you're just acknowledging what's happening. You're not agreeing with it. Um, I just wanted to say, no need for an apology. I didn't come correct when I first made that statement. So my apology to you, because you just defended exactly what you, you know, where you were coming from. So are we going to date or? I mean, it can be discussed, but, but I, but we are hosting tomorrow. You're both consenting adults. What, yeah, we are, we are hosting together tomorrow. So let's see if you like me after you realize that's, I can't yeah, read. True. After you realize I can't read, let's see if you still want to do this. Okay. That's fair. Like Logan in his old age. Logan doesn't read. know how to read. Come All right. On, man. All right. Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. So should globalists be more aware and compassionate about the negative effects of globalism in rural areas and were the inhumans aware and compassionate enough about the negative effects of the terrigen cloud on the mutant population? I would say that the inhumans were not aware or compassionate enough in my opinion because it, to me it seemed kind of like they rushed to a conclusion that this would be awesome without really thinking it all the way through which I think is always bad but when it comes to globalists being more aware and compassionate 
I think that is to an extent true um, because I think that it's always bad when you're just kowtowing to a large ideal. But I will say that as a person that tends to see the bigger picture, I don't usually do that. But then again, also I've had the ability to like move away, move to cities. So I don't think it's not fair for me to judge that after I've been given all these chances to learn um, different things that I should say, like you have to change your entire worldview just because I had those chances. So I think it's complicated. No, I, I, I agree with what has been said already. And I think that, well, of course it's, it's kind of, difficult to be seeing these conflicting positions or conflicting worldviews. But I mean, if you want to get real like determinist on, on this topic, uh, basically everyone who has like this, a different stance uh, on it, that, that stands kind of originated from the conditions they were living under. And uh, in a way, I get that we all have the a responsibility to to see the bigger picture, but then again, I also get that, you know, from uh, with with p impoverished people, uh, I can't always expect them to to see that bigger picture in terms of like the ramifications of of globalism. And in a way, there has to be found a solution that both defeats like the the populist uh, or the right-wing populist agenda and uh, and fear-mongering, but also gets into the fears of the economically uh, uh, disenfranchised. When I think about the effect of globalism to, like, you know, small rural areas, it makes me think of Lord of the Rings um, because it, uh, it's like this whole war that's going on and the Shire is more or less untouched, but, like, the whole concept is that it's gonna the whole the war is gonna spread, and I remember the part in the movie where Pippin's like, "It's great. We'll just go back to the Shire. It's cool. Nothing can touch us there. We'll just go back to our thinking." And Mary's like, "You don't get it. Like the fires will just keep spreading. The war will keep expanding. There won't be a Shire by the time we get back." So it is interesting because like I understand both sides of it because in a way, for like a short period of time, you can stay untouched like uh, that community and that understanding won't be like you know I guess affected but globalism does have like a weird responsibility at that point then to understand their effects on all these small groups like even if they don't understand it at first you to use the extended metaphor like a hobbit's like yo like this doesn't make sense this sounds complicated why don't we just all smoke and like be fat or whatever and then the men and like elves are like going to fucking war and shit so it's like you know like it's just like you have to put things in context and sometimes you're like oh shit now i get it because like i see it but you have to get to that point of dialogue so you do need to be sensitive from a globalist point of view but you also have to be open to like talking about it okay listen one can be there's a difference between a globalist like Alex Jones, the kind of like conspiracy theorist believes in demons, conservative Christian Texan says, the globalists, the globalists are coming after us. You know, they're going to take our... Basically, he. I mean, it's not even a very big question. He's using globalist as a stand-in for Jews. Like, that's what he's talking about, is Jewish. The same kind of 
Jewish conspiracies that people believed in 100, 150 okay, yeah, years so ago. I'm talking about the people who are afraid to lose a factory in their town and for no one to have jobs. Right, and, and one can instead be a cosmopolitan rather than a globalist, uh, which is a good thing, you know, to think that, like, we should all share certain values, certain, like, uh, generally human, generally good values, and... To you, you can. What I'm saying is, you can be, you can live in an urban area on the coast and feel that you are in touch with other people in other urban areas on other coasts without thinking that there should be unlimited free trade, without thinking that as the Obama administration did and as Hillary Clinton advocated that there should be like no barriers to the movement of capital across these regions and the enrichment of the bourgeoisie in all these regions. You know, that's these are these are separate things. You know. I'm not educated the Inhumans were wrong because they knocked out Storm and they didn't have to do that because she was trying to have peace with them. Just to bring in some real world, world, world examples um, about, this, about this happening. Someone brought in like the factories losing their jobs. So it wasn't a factory, but... That in, was me. Hashtag yeah. credit where it's due. <laughs> Hashtag, that, that is credit, but I don't know why. I've, I feel like I'm really painting myself as a country bumpkin type, but... The the one thing that really kind of ruined the this job and a lot of the small businesses within it was not so much a factory, but actually a Walmart. Um, yep, and where they all shop. I, honestly, though, but like the idea of like these bigger franchises breaking up the smaller family-owned businesses because you know they are more convenient and they just are better for that, and it it sucks. But like that is a reality that some people sort of face yeah and, and do you really want to pay five thousand dollars for your iphone with a, with a two-year contract i don't but i know alex does people are just selfish so at the end of the day the x-men didn't really care they really didn't care their decision was their decision the humans the inhumans have to deal with it obviously yeah it sucks but the x-men cared about the x-men they care about the inhumans so you should not support places like walmart where you get cheaper products because you should support family-owned businesses where you get um, not only a more personal experience, and uh, this includes like comic shops. I hate when people buy comics from, say, Target because that really annoys me. I get mine from Amazon. That pisses me off. Uh, you should pay the extra $5 and just support your local comic book I store. I for Amazon Prime. Okay, go. And in Humans vs. X-Men, I think both sides can represent globalism where it's kind of like they just weren't, they had the best intention in mind, but like so many times in real life, you're not thinking of the other side and how it's affecting them. You're thinking of how it will help them, but you're not thinking of their point of view and how it won't help them. Okay, so to bring it back to um, Inhumans versus X-Men, um, yes, the Inhumans were doing everything they could to help the X-Men and to have them both coexist together. But also somebody said earlier that the X-Men have been through this time and time again. So they weren't in the position to have a conversation about it and be nice about it. They were in the position where they had to fight back or else they were literally all going to die. It was a matter of genocide. And yeah, they could have just told the Inhumans this and the Inhumans would have been totally cool with getting rid of the Terrigen cloud but they didn't have that option. It was it was fight or die. I really did like the interpretation of this conflict as being about globalism versus populism. But I think that there's possibly more to to the metaphor. Uh, and somewhere in the Inhuman versus X Men conflict, I think that like one of my first thoughts reading Extraordinary X Men was that you know like on top of the way the X Men are usually 
made to work as a metaphor for marginalized groups, uh, I feel like the refugee experience now starts to be part of the mutant experience because they quite literally literally have to uh, escape from or flee from their homes to what well quite literally hell and do you think that this could be understand as a, uh, understood as a story about asylum seekers? Yeah, definitely. And um, I think it's happening now. And then um, it definitely happened during decimation after House of M because I think Professor Xavier's uh, mansion was an asylum. I could be, did, any, did anybody else read that besides Marius and me? Um, I, that to me was one of the coolest storylines because that's when um, the 198 came out. So there were only 198 mutants left um, on the planet at the time. So I think that's um, very relatable to uh, what's happening today where... Um, refugees have to seek a safe haven and many people are opposed to it. Yeah. I feel like the, the actions of like the monarchic inhuman regime is what led to this uh, kind of like increase in mutant refugees, obviously. Um, and I feel like this could be symbolic for how powerful nation states with like selfish and imperialistic behavior create the reasons for asylum seekers to flee from their home countries. I ha kind of have the sense that we see a lot of that recently in in the real world equivalent to, to this conflict. What do you think? I think that makes a lot of sense, um, especially in the way that X-Men sort of stand in for any oppressed group that the editors of Marvel need them to. But, I mean, I think it's very apparent all throughout this, these comics that the X-Men are much more powerful than the Inhumans, you know? The Inhumans feel that they are at a disadvantage when fighting the X-Men all throughout it. And look at Emma. I mean, Emma, like, pushes her hand through Black Bolt's shoulder right at the end of it all. That's not even her main power. She's mainly a telepath, not a diamond skin transformer, right? But she uses her, like, secondary mutation to just say, fuck you, Black Bolt. You know, like, it's like, and Black Bolt is the most powerful in human. Like, they, there's, a kind of a, there's a kind of a dynamic being set up in which, as the most popular heroes, as the most well-liked heroes by the fans... The X-Men are also being set up as the kind of leading group, the ones who are setting the tone. And I feel that like Beast and, and Rogue and other members of the X-Men are trying to set a reasonable tone, a, 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 not a liberal tone, not like a, not a tone that's unwilling to accept violence, but a tone that is just that acknowledges that regular humans also probably hate inhumans as well, you know? Uh, an intersectional tone, let's say. And and instead, Emma, the authoritarian, and Magneto, who I, I gotta say I like, you know, but uh, they are ready to just kind of lead them in a direction of antagonism toward their fellow oppressed group. Are you saying this could be like a disanalogy to real life events? Uh, um, because I feel, I feel like my, um, in the analogy that I had in mind, the like the monarchic and human regime is kind of like it's in, in this situation, at least it's not even like a uh, representative of a marginalized group, but more like a, a powerful political regime, I guess. I mean, yeah, they're a monarchy, you know, so they, of course they represent monarchies, but they're so inclusive toward their new members like Daisuke and all these other new uh, inhumans who are all introduced all throughout it are treated 
the same way that alchemy is treated by, you know, um, hallucination Scott, like astral representation Scott and Emma. Uh, in that they like they like strongly encourage them to participate, but they do give them the choice of not participating. I feel, and this uh, same trope is brought up again and again of how these people are like, well, we're just inexperienced people. We don't know what to do. We've been drafted onto one side or the other, and it is how it does feel to get drafted. I think, but. They basically they don't want to fight, and neither do the X Men. It's only Emma who wants to fight, and uh, Magneto, of course. But he wasn't even involved in it at first. She brought him in, you know. Uh, like so, like it's it's really. I mean, the whole thing is being set up as a way to make Emma into a villain again, and to give the fans a good reason to think like, oh, she's so villainous because she really she really has ta- he she really has brought the X Men by lying to them explicitly into this conflict that they didn't even want to be in. I mean, who is more representative than Beast and Rogue after Cyclops to say, we don't want to be in this conflict, and she just talks over them and says, we'll, we'll be in it anyway. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like the, the conflict that we're talking about is still carried on on the backs of the mutants, and upon like the initial... Um, creation of the Terrigen mist clouds I, I mean it's been hinted at that um, no one really like knew the the consequences of what was going to happen and later on I mean it's pretty obvious that the inhuman community knew what damage it was doing to the mutant community and still uh, they weren't really uh, wanting to do anything against that so like the inclusiveness that you mentioned I I agree that this is something that uh, speaks in favor of the inhumans or in favor of the inhumans as a metaphor for marginalized groups. But then again, it could also be like a liberal facade to this powerful uh, regime that uh, in its like monarchic actions still suppresses the the mutant group. So uh, yeah, let's just come full circle to the discussion we had last year. Uh, we know that Xavier is long dead in the comics and that his uh, dream of peaceful coexistence is... Uh, do you think that it is viable at this point of the story? Because, well, do the Inhumans versus uh, X-Men metaphors that we just discussed frame Magneto's argument as kind of like the different way or in a different way, way than it was previously framed? And like for those who... For those of you on the podcasts who were around last year um do you think that your stance on on either of the ideologies has changed since reading uh inhumans vs x-men or getting into inhumans vs x-men yeah like uh i don't entirely remember what my stance was from last year i feel like i understood what xavier wanted and i understood and wanted those things but it was like so idealist that it upset me because it was something that you should work toward but you're never gonna get there (laughs) but and then I think after this like because I don't know it really depends on what you mean by like do you think that Magneto's philosophy was kind of framed differently but it was still ended kind of optimistically so in in this world sure but in life, I I don't know, but I kind of understand. Like when you guys were talking about Emma, I couldn't help but feel like, but I know why she's angry though. 
like I know why she's mad and like part of you kind of just wants to be like yeah fuck you like just like you know it's the easy way out for sure but the emotional part of you that like takes out the rational is like yeah no I'm not gonna get like that again like fuck you and fuck everyone else don't come for me I'm gonna do this shit so like I wasn't to me it's not villainous of her it's just kind of like oh, baby girl, I feel you, but we can't. We can't do that, though. And she's like, no, we can. And I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> it's fictional, so it's fine. Just kidding. It's real. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I have kind of, I feel like what's a hot take, but I think that kind of what Kay was saying about how Xavier had this kind of pure dream and then you kind of struggle with it because you're like, that can't be a real thing. I think that when Scott, and Scott died, uh, I think the last thread kind of of Xavier's dream kind of died with them because I think that Xavier kind of believed in this idea that you you live an intentional life and you set an example and that becomes an idea and people follow in your footsteps. And I think um, Scott died under not the best circumstance. You know, he just kind of got taken out on accident. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't a statement. It didn't push any agendas and then emma kind of ran with that um because of her anger at the inhumans but she spun it into this whole ideology and this whole dream that lived on its own kind of like a a peaceful sacrifice that she tried to turn into something productive and i think even though xavier spouted these big ideals and that was exactly the opposite of what he wanted like he wanted this dream to be real and Emma took something that was not real, tried to make it real, but then used it for like the completely opposite reason. And I mean, even though I disagree with like, kind of, I think that the Sentinel thing was out of character for her. I think that, that kind of shows that like the dream died and she tried to revive it. And then it just ended in her like using Sentinels to try and genocide a whole other race with Scott dying. That dream died as well. Like Emma ran with it and it just led to the complete opposite way. And I think it showed the limitation of that dream um, that was still alive, but then when Scott died, I think it just completely showed that it might not be possible. Kind of relating back to the beginning of the podcast, how we talked about how the integrationist um, dream was perfect in concept, but then people are looking at it now and thinking maybe it's a pure social goal that can never be quite achieved. I think that message died, that dream died before Cyclops died. He took his experiences of what he had with Professor X and he took all that stuff and he kind of made his own way a little bit, you know? And yeah, what you're saying is how he dies is like he gets taken out, not how somebody who Emma Frost sees as this great man should be taken out. He is a casualty kind of like he dies in a very unglamorous way unknown to anyone in this kind of thing and what you see is not i don't think what you see is professor x's dream i think it's what she interprets as cyclops's dream when she's talking to everyone as cyclops she makes this huge she makes him like this godzilla like figure in one town you know and she continues that thing we're, we're taking out a very big factor which is not only the fact that she a badass but she was in love with this person and this is how she sees his dream and his dying words are like, don't let them or something like that. I, I can't recall exactly. But he wants her to, you know. Don't end, let me, don't let it end this don't way. Add, don't let it like end this that, way. Yeah. Because the way he was taken out was so not how it was supposed to go down. And in that moment, you react. And uh, we were talking about kind of before that, that scene in, uh, in the Jackie O film where they're like, you know, after he gets killed, after Kennedy gets killed, she's like, no, we're going out through the front because they want us to be afraid. 
You know what I mean? And I was, and I had posed the question was, when we look at these female figures or we look at these figures that take over after this man gets killed, is that greatness? Why? Why do we not? Why are we looking at that as that greatness was just always there in them? You know that that was always in there to take that mantle almost. And I think she did what she had to do, and she continued his dream, not Xavier's. So that was all well stated, and I totally agree. But two things I want to bring up. One of them is um, I don't think it's fair to say that Xavier's dream only lives on in Cyclops. Um, especially when you look at characters like um, Kitty Pride and Storm, because I would argue um, both of them, and I think we'll see this in X-Men Gold, but you saw an all-new X-Men 2 with Kitty Pride. Um, they kind of continue what Charles was trying to do. Maybe it's not exactly the same, but Cyclops didn't do exactly the same thing, so I think the dream is still alive um, in some of the original X-Men who were around in the 70s and 80s. And then going back to the original question, jumping on what Kat said a while ago, where... Um, Gen uh, genocide was literally happening against the mutants, so of course they acted the way they did because this has been going on and this was kind of the tipping point. I would say that this is kind of, you can kind of agree more with old school Magneto where like beforehand you really couldn't see humans wiping out mutants, it was just an idea, but in this instance you literally saw it happening, so it, it justifies it a little more. Emma literally loses her mind and breaks with reality several times during Death of X and Inhumans versus X-Men. Is that a consequence of using Cyclops as an idea or lying so much that she learned to believe it was the truth? And is there any possible foreshadowing we can see from this happening in the comic to something that might happen in the real world in two sentences or less minus punctuation? Okay, here's what I'm interpreting that as. It's, it's kind of like when, uh, when Kellyanne Conway, right, went on and said, oh, these are just alternative facts. Like, you just twist the truth around so much until you start to believe your own lies. Is that kind of what you're going yes. for? Okay. And then also, I think it's kind of like when you keep building up these stereotypes or you make things up, if you say these things about people, if you see one case of it, you're like, oh, of course it's true, even though there's like a billion other people who represent that population. Well, yeah, the reason I was confused is because she's a leader, right? And that's kind of like, what, then is Trump living in different realities? But absolutely. I mean, that's, I, I agree with what Kat's saying. I, I have to say, I'm, I'm not so sure whether like Emma literally losing her mind after the death of Cyclops was so much a plot point about this idea of learning to believe your own lies as much as I, I think, uh, on a very like one dimensional level it was just a story of her losing it after her after she's been through so much and her, uh, uh, the love of her life died um but i do think that the idea in itself is applicable to real life scenarios especially when we have people like trump in uh well in these uh, positions of leadership and they try to uh, and they they start living in their own uh alternate fact type reality and uh we've seen this a lot this week uh, just doing uh well questionable and unreasonable things that can result in the deaths of many and i think that's i mean that's what happened with emma right i do think this is uh, applicable in in real life absolutely just to tie it again to another X-Men comic, it's almost like what happened with Stryker and God Loves Man Kills and how he justified the deaths of all the mutants due to his own personal experience with his family. Um, I'm not saying it's quite to the extreme with Emma, but it's definitely still there. And as such, these very human reasons for wanting to kind of like 
change fate and change the reality of what's happened. In Emma's case, in a slightly more positive connotation, might not exactly be the same as what the Trump administration is doing. I got to say, if 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 late uh, death of X X Men versus Inhumans, Emma reminds me of anyone in the real world as a leader, it's Marine Le Pen, and like she is like she is like like people who are part of the race she is claiming to protect are saying we're not sure about this. We feel that you are manipulating us. And not only is she not admitting that, yes, she is manipulating them, but also she's threatening to accuse them of, like, sedition, you know? She says to Rogue, like, are you, you used to work with the Inhumans. Is that why you're questioning me now? Like, no, Rogue just knows that this is all stupid. Rogue just can tell that they shouldn't be fucking doing this, you know? And the the resolution to all this is they should never have listened to Emma. You know, like Emma's a very interesting character. That's not the problem. The problem is she is a she was a villain. She can become a villain again. It's not to say that people, you know, once a villain, always a villain. It's just that like they should be a little more cautious about letting Emma set the agenda. She's just she's leading them on a path that's overly militant. Do you think that she got what she deserves? And what do you think of the fact that it was Havoc, uh, Cyclops' brother, who saved her? Marius, I know you have to have an opinion about this. As I said, I'm not really, I'm not really sure about the path that they took Emma on at the end of the, uh, at the ending, in the ending of uh, Inhumans vs. X Men. Um, then again, I think that it's interesting that Havoc of all people would save her because of his uh, his dialogue with Medusa early on in the series. And it's it's interesting that Havoc would always be portrayed as uh, being radically different to his brother and having radically different opinions to his brother. And now in death, he kind of becomes complicit in like the propagation or at least the uh, uh, continuation of, of Cyclops's legacy, I guess, in saving Emma, who claims to to do all this in, in the name of Scott, I guess. But I'm uh, on the on the other hand, I'm I'm kind of confused by the whole Havoc backstory because some uh, aspects of his past are still considered canon while with others I'm not really sure about, like the Axis event that uh, Rick Remender did in which uh, he has been, like his mind has been manipulated to be evil or something along those lines. Uh, I'm not sure if that's considered canon because other things from that uh, event are not considered canon, which, I mean, it happened right before the the Secret Wars uh, event, so we don't know that. So I don't, I don't think we we can tell with absolute certainty what Havoc is up to. Uh, I was just going to say, I liked the Havoc um, saving her thing only because I think that why I enjoyed Emma's story a lot is that I thought it was interesting because it was complicated, but it was mostly a story about like kind of family and connection and love. And so I think it made sense to me that that happened at the end because I mean, there's a point, there's like a panel somewhere on that lap before that last issue where someone was like, It's always just been about Emma and Scott, and like that was how I felt about the whole arc. So for me, it made sense that at the end he would come in and he'd be like, It's my favor, like it's my this is my turning in my family favor for you. Um, so to me, that 
kind of brought home those family love connection threads that I was really interested in the whole time. Um, so I, I liked it. I thought it was Havoc's, I thought Havoc's behavior to me felt appropriate. I like Havoc. I've always liked Havoc. He's the less prom king of the Summers Brothers, you know? He's the rebel. He's the, like, cigarette smoking behind the bleachers guy, you know? And that's cool. Um, Cigarettes are cool. Uh, well, yeah. But, like, he's just he's just the brooding guy, you know? He's not such a kind of... He doesn't find it so easy to fall into this role of alpha male that Scott does. And so, instead, he feels this kind of tension with what is asked of him. And... I don't find it to be especially smooth that, or kind of like um, easily characterized that he both stepped out of his mutant role and asked to be considered just a human and not a mutant, as we discussed a year ago in the last podcast, and that he did this. But I find this now to be much more in line with his character, that he, as the outsider, as the one who's never accepted is the one who's willing to broker a peace between two opposing sides because he doesn't feel like he fits into the mutant side. He doesn't feel like he's welcomed by them. He feels like he's overshadowed by his brother. And and in combination with that, just being the kind of like cavalier individual he is, he'll just like he'll just be like, you know what, I'm going to make this turn out the way I want instead of doing what other people want. And the way he wants it is both to indict Emma, make her suffer for it, and also prevent her from dying. You know, he wants to both, like, he wants to both, like, make her uh, responsible and keep her from getting killed, you know, which is really subtle and interesting. I thought it was appropriate. I actually felt very touched by it because similarly to what Jamie was saying, it is very familial, you know, like, they never had, like, they, when Scott was alive, they never really owed each other anything. They didn't even necessarily have to get along. But, like, with the passing of someone that connected them, it's kind of just like, okay, like, death does weird things to people, especially in families. So it's like, I'm reaching out to you because you're all I have left at this point. And then it's also interesting because part of the question was, did Emma get her comeuppance? Yes, she did. And she, like, I feel like she always does in the end. Like, that's why I can never hate her. Because even when she does villainous things, like, she gets up like by it in some way like she weasers her way out of it kind of but not really and you know you can see in many other podcasts that we've done that I think that Emma's character part of it is like this cycle of like self-hatred anyway so she does this purposefully like as a destructive means and the fact that Havoc was the one to like I guess save her is like what no one was saying makes sense because it's like for the first time they have something in common or that they can relate in some way but also because like again to go back to Jamie's thing in the familial theme if we're going with the familial motif it's like it's love love is like forgiveness and being like okay like sure and that's kind of why I like Emma because she's so compelling but people still forgive her why why would you forgive her then if she's so shitty but people do. Magneto's not going to forgive her. He's going to be after her now. He was was he pissed? I thought he was. Cause she like took over his mind for part of the final battle, you know. Oh when she yeah, didn't oh, even I forgot have about to, that. When he was already on her side, you know, and she still did it. Yeah, but she, you know, he, she was going to take it to a whole nother level. Okay, lightning round this. Okay, ready? We're going to move this into talking about Kitty Pride and X Men Gold. Cat, we're going to start with you. What kind of leader is Kitty Pride for the X Men in a post Inhuman versus X Men post Trump world? 
Kitty Pride as a leader for the X-Men in a post-Trump world. She is going to be somebody who always stands up for mutants, for minorities, for anybody who's discriminated against. She's not always a physical fighter, but she's always passionate and she always fights for what she believes in. And how is she going to be different from Cyclops and Emma and Xavier? Well, everybody, I mean, post, um, I mean, after Charles Xavier, everybody's kind of like adopted their own form of his dream. Um, Cyclops, you know, the, the ends justified the means. And for Emma, you know, she totally lost it. But for Kitty, it, it, Charles Xavier was always an advocate for coexistence. But I think Kitty is more an advocate for mutant rights. Uh, I agree. And I would say that um, what sets Kitty apart as a leader right now is that she wants to do something that I don't think mutants have done in the last uh, 15 years of comic books, which is like the same approach, I guess, that uh, Cyclops wanted to employ in the Astonishing X-Men comics, which is like, let's be superheroes again and let's be inspiring to the world. So in that sense, we can move forward the ideas of Xavier's dream. Uh, I just wanted to add onto what everyone just said, I think is brilliant. And I was going to add, I think also Kitty is a bit of a smarter leader um, because she doesn't have some of the insecurities that previous leaders had that I think held them back. Like there was always some good stuff going on in the background. I felt especially like Scott and with Emma having like these little insecurities that plague them. And then those selfish desires to fix those things were kind of like um, caused them to fall off the track. Even like most recently, of course, with like Emma's flurry of rage brilliance. So I think that Kitty has doesn't have as many of those. And I think that's going to help her be a good leader. Jamie, you're killing it. But to add on to that, I think I agree because Kitty Pride is technically younger than Emma, right? Like she's like a younger generation, much younger, right? So to me, I like it because Kitty Pride is like kind of represents like the next generation learning from the previous generation's faults. And like kind of learning from those mistakes and being like, let me not do that because I saw that that got all fucked up. And she has like she's always been known to be like pragmatic and down to earth, but still passionate. If anything, she is such a ideal student too, like in a way, because like even in no matter what permutation you see her, she's always just like a good student and passionate and like really smart. So I feel like she's the perfect representation of like the accumulation of what she learned from these people both bad and good so it's appropriate that it's her i'm i'm gonna play devil's advocate i'm gonna go ahead and say that i think later on much later down the line she's gonna be a great leader but i think for now she's gonna walk into it with a lot of pride and it's gonna lead to a lot of issues i think she's gonna make (laughs) kitty pride i think it's gonna lead to a lot of uh a lot of problems. I think just there's going to be a lot of, if this is their way of just creating a lot of conflict that's going to develop, what makes her a great leader, people are going to fight that. I think that's going to be a great way to just move the X-Men in a direction that'll be in the future much better. But for now, I think it's going to be a, a, like a mess, like a really big mess. But that's not surprising, though, because ego was always a problem among X-Men leaders anyway. I think ego was a big problem for X-Men leaders, particularly the one with penises. Um, I think Kitty Pride. if Marvel is smart, I think, and going with what Brandon's kind of saying here, I think that, yeah, you can have her screw up in the beginning, but I think it's because Kitty Pride should be the leader of the X-Men for the next 15 to 20 human years. <laughs> Not comic book. You need a hero of the years. But, I mean, how long, how long was Xavier for, there for? I think, that, I think that it sends a... I don't, I don't know about sending a message, but I think she's the obvious choice to be the leader of the team, and... 
I just think that she's going to, when it's all said and done, and this is a bold statement, I think she'll be the best leader that the X-Men have ever had. Kitty Pride went, she was a kid in the beginning of the X-Men, and now she's like grown through um, all their experiences. And I guess not a lot of people agree with this, but I always considered her a leader of the X-Men, especially with all new X-Men. She literally took Beast's mistake of bringing the original X-Men back. He couldn't handle it. And she's like, all right, I'm going to train them. And she was the leader in all new X-Men by Bendis for 40 issues. So um, I don't consider it's her first time being a leader, but the fact that Marvel is making her a leader of the classic 70s and 80s team is basically them saying, like, this is Kitty Pride. She went through the X-Men. She's a woman. She's going to kick ass. She deserves it. I'm just really glad you brought in the all new X-Men. I'm again, that's one of my favorite X books like series ever. It's just really good stuff. Um, maybe this is also just like a shameless self plug, but I kind of, I kind of hope that she's going to be like the girls that I see at our school anyway, like where we go to like in Barnard college, there's like these really strong, um, female, like independent women types who are just know what they're about and know what they stand for and really want to create a change in the world and that's what I personally hope that she'll do. I'm a Smindy Pubs girl for a reason. I do not follow X-Men, but just from what I'm hearing, I think it'd be really interesting, Kitty as leader, just to see the dynamics within the X-Family. Like, what's going to go on in that mansion? How are relationships and allegiances going to change? That might get me back into Marvel, I'm not going to lie. I don't want to see her know what she's about. I want to see her struggle. I want to see her wrestle with ideals, and I want to see her come out better than it would have. I want us to know that she's the better one than Charles than Xavier. I mean, I mean, Cyclops and Xavier. Sorry. I'd like to end this year as I ended last year with a quote from George Washington. Yes, he had slaves, but he wasn't so bad. There were other people who had slaves that were way worse. So let's put this in perspective. The United States is a government which to bigotry gives no sanction to persecution, no assistance, but generously affording to all liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship, deeming everyone of whatever nation, tongue, or language equal parts of the great governmental machine. This so ample and extensive federal union whose basis is philanthropy, mutual confidence, and public virtue. It goes on to read and repeat, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. The happily, the government of the United States which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens. Thank you so much for everyone being on the panel. Thank you, everyone, for helping me celebrate my birthday. Thank you, everyone who's listening. Have a really good night, everybody. Thank you. Happy birthday.